I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over until the bank reopens. I'll take $242. <laughs> movies from the sublime to the suspicious as always i'm lindsay wilkins and today feels like a very special episode of sorts not only because we are dealing with two different types of classics um, that will often break your heart um, but they also mean a lot to today's guest um, of course this is a double of frank capra's it's a wonderful life and sam raimi's spider-man 2 so of course there's only one person i could have for that and that is of course host of action for everyone's michael scott hey how's it going Islands. Uh, <laughs> I am, I am, you know, I, I just want to say thank you so much for, for this one. Cause I, I reached out to you, you know, a little bit behind the curtain here for people. I reached out to Linz after I had watched Spider-Man two again, just a couple weeks ago and was like, it's, and I've, we'll get into the whole whys of it, but I, I, I just said, it's a wonderful life in Spider-Man two uh, for next year. Cause I know how far out you plan. Mm. And so thought there was just absolutely no way you were going to get in this year you know and you're like well we can do it in like a week and a half if that's okay and i'm like well yeah <laughs> so <laughs> this one's this one's all on me you are doing me a solid for letting me come on and and blather on about these movies and i really appreciate it well no because as i was saying to you just before i mean i had just watched um the vigil spider-man because you i'd seen everyone sort of it was thanksgiving and everyone was watching it and i'm like oh god i really do love that movie and then um, I was also saying that It's a Wonderful Life has just be, has turned into a regular yearly viewing. So I was kidding myself if I wasn't going to watch either of these movies in the next couple of weeks. I'm like going, yeah, why not? Let's just do it. It's going to be, it's, it's Mike. It's going to be a good time. And these, um, and as we'll get into it, you do have a point when you're saying Spider-Man 2, just a bit, not bury the lead, is the Capra movie that Frank Capra never made. Um, and boy, is it. Um, so yeah, this this just worked out. And so thank you again for wanting to come on and do this double because it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to it. I am. I'm looking forward to talking about both of these. You know, for people, I, I can't imagine anybody doesn't know at this point, but Spider-Man 2 is my absolute favorite movie of all time. Mm. You know, I was a little... I'm a little nervous about trying to talk about it, but, you know, I'll power through. We'll get through it. Because um, <laughs> uh, it is hard to talk. You know, it's one thing to talk about, like, a movie that you're just kind of like, yeah, that's fun and I like it and stuff like that. But when it's a movie that, you know, I'm not being hyperbolic here when I say, you know, it's literally part of my soul. Like, that, that movie is part of who I am. And so that's a lot 
more difficult to talk about i think no it's a i always call it a dna movie it's just part of you yeah it's part of your soul and this is a very much a dna movie for you so i was i would have been kind of i wouldn't have been surprised if you said i don't need to watch this movie again i know every single beat of it because it is that important to you as we'll sort of get into so this is why i'm really looking forward to it but before we jump in You've just done some rebranding in the last couple of, is it a month or two months? I'm losing, as usual, I'm losing time with um, your new venture, um, Action for Everyone, which by the way has been kicking ass, by the way, with uh, Liam and Vice. Thank you so much. Yeah. So um, for everybody that that likes, you know, that, that follows Adkins Undisputed, Adkins Undisputed is on hiatus. It is going to continue. I actually have several episodes banked. I just haven't been able to edit them. Um, and, and, and honestly, I haven't been able to write. That's been the, the holdup is the mm. script. Um, that's going to continue. But this new thing that we're doing that, that credit where it's due is actually Liam O'Donnell's idea. For those who don't know, he's the director of Beyond Skyline and Skylines, two of my favorite sort of indie action movies of the last five years. And uh, he reached out to me and Vice and and wanted to do this show where every week we just kind of, the idea was not to be structured. The idea was to just be this sort of rough and loose discussion of everything that's going on in action cinema, because there's so many horror podcasts that do that, mm. but there really isn't very many that that focus on action and in particular kind of stuff like direct to video or indie action, you know, to really kind of try and highlight some of these people along the lines of what I tried to do, you know, uh, in Adkins Undisputed. And so we just sort of recorded a pilot, kicked it out. Everybody seemed to really respond. Uh, We came up with the name, our our good friend, you know, one of my sayings that I sort of made a motto of when I talk about action movies is that action is for everyone. And uh, our good friend, uh, Matthew Essery from Video Culture and, and Film Combat Syndicate suggested that we title the podcast that. We dropped the is because Liam's a better writer than I am. So he understands passive versus active voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> made it action for everyone. Yeah. And I decided as we were doing this, that it made more sense to rebrand rather than having action for everyone as a subset of Adkins Mm. Undisputed. It made more sense to rebrand and have Adkins Undisputed be a subset of action for everyone. Uh, You know, kind of, you know, nobody hold me to this, but kind of with the goal of actually sort of trying to start a network for these kinds of shows. You know, our good friend, uh, my my little bro, Rob Antiquera. uh, Yes just rebranded uh they used to be the action drunkies they're now the cinema drunkies but you know maybe kind of finding a home for some of these shows that talk about the stuff that i like to talk about that's going to be way down the road but it had to start with sort of branding and creating a new umbrella so that's what we did no because uh you're right there are so many horror podcasts that do what um actions for everyone i'm getting the title wrong is doing um but and because of that, uh, indie horror has kind of gotten this new, is a new thing. It's a thing that everyone talks about, everyone knows, no matter how little the budget is, it gets talked about. And I love the fact that you're doing it for some of the DTV action movies, which has always had this kind of weird reputation for being less than, which I don't think it is. Because if you ever watch Undisputed 3, another DNA movie of yours, it's kind of like, Jesus fucking Christ, how, how do they make this? Even though it's a relatively simple movie. And I love how you bring these kind of voices and these kind of actors 
that um, a a place where people can go oh I want to go see a Daniel Bernhardt movie now even though I had yeah that kind of thing so that's kind of loving the fact that they've got the three feistiest um, action fans <laughs> on mic um, but you must be living a quite surreal life because not only did you get to interview your hero Scott Atkins but now you have the director of Skylines busting your chops about not liking a Bond movie <laughs> just <Yeah>. randomly <laughs> when you're trying to live your life <laughs> I, I'm literally laying in bed right <laughs> he's in he's in la time mm. i'm in utah time more mm. vice is in new york time mm. so i feel even worse for him because he's probably deep asleep and his phone's just buzzing with you know and yeah liam's like coming for me <laughs> in the middle of the night because i didn't like a friggin bond movie like that motherfucker um no no it's it's actually been a real it's been a real treat because um i i didn't know you know, the only way I even sort of got to know Liam was because I was a big fan of Beyond Skyline. And then as the promo for Skylines was ramping up, he he was pretty active on Twitter. And uh, so I followed him because I was very excited for Skylines. And, and then when Skylines came out and was fucking terrific, um, you know, we started talking more and I decided to get him on and we did an episode on uh, on Adkins Undisputed where he and I went through and did our favorite part threes. Uh, and he was just so friggin' easy to talk to mm. uh, that it was ridiculous, you know? And, uh, and, and then we just have, yeah, kind of become friends. And so this was actually his brainchild. He's mm. the one that reached out to us. And uh, I was just flattered and kind of blown away. And, and, you know, and as Vice said, it's, it's always a little leery when, when two, you know, random white dudes reach out to you and are like, Hey, you should do a podcast with us. But <laughs> yes, it's like, what are you getting me into? <laughs> the very first episode, we just were in sync. I mean, the three of us had, I, I've had Vice on Adkins before mm. too undisputed three and special forces with me, but I'd never talked to the two of them together. It was the first time all three of us uh, got together. And as you know, I don't usually record with video, but mm. because three of us, we actually do video. So it was the first time all three of us had actually seen each other. Oh, wow. But we just immediately fell into like a rhythm and a, and a sync. And it, uh, you know, people have really responded, which has been terrific. But honestly, it's one of those shows that I would I would do if we got 10 people listening to it, because I just love talking to these two guys every week. Like I, I look forward to it every Sunday when we record um, to to be able to talk to them. And I do like that. We you know me, Lindsay, I try and keep everything positive, but I do like that we mix it up and we do get a little snarky because, you know, not everything is good. It's OK to say I didn't like this movie or that movie. Um, you know, it's not okay to DM me at two in the morning about it, but <laughs> it's, it's okay to say I didn't like this movie or that movie and to kind of mix it up and scrap it up a little bit. You know, Twitter has made us so brain broken in terms of how we talk about movies that we've, we've gone, you know, so far into the let people like things, which yes. I believe, but we've gone so far in that that now it's like, it's almost not okay to not like something. And, uh, and so I do like that we scrap it up a little bit. No, I love that. Cause you, all three of you have a laugh that can fill a room. So when you three are together, it goes absolutely bonkers, but which I, I, I love. Um, 
but yeah, what I do love is that you can not like a movie, but what I also appreciate is when you're talking about um, you, cause you, I think you've said it a couple of times, movies that can take it like Bond. Yes. I'm a bigger fan of Bond and that's okay. But Bond can take criticism. It can take whatever you want to throw at it. It's like a 300 million, $500 million movie that made a billion dollars. And I don't think that's still enough that what the uh, broccoli's wanted. Um, and it's kind of this weird thing, but when you're talking about something that was made for what barely a million or something, you kind of take that into the account of your criticism, which I really appreciate because it's not, I think Twitter has kind of gotten this into like a thumbs up, thumbs down way of criticizing. And now we've gone so far in the direction of no, just you have to like something, um, which I completely agree with, but you take them, you take it on a movie by movie basis. It's not, Oh, this sucks. I think, but you can articulate and you kind of, respect how much work went into something or what the budget was or how because Liam's industry guy so he kind of knows the inner workings and so I appreciate that I mean you're not going to completely take apart a $500,000 movie because you didn't like it because you're going well it was made for $500,000 and a pizza um so that's kind of what I love about it you can kind of you know the distinction between a movie that can take that kind of criticism and a movie that Maybe you can say, well, it's not perfect, but you should see it because, you know, you're supporting a filmmaker and all that kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I firmly believe in grading on a curve. Degree difficulty mm. matters. Uh, going back 25 years, you know, in the, in, I've been making like kind of personal top 10 lists since I was in high school. Mm. And, and the movies that always end up on my worst list are typically not the actual worst movies they're the movies that i feel like should have known better or should have been better because they had all these resources and mm. all these things available to them you know we talked about one of the ones we talked about was uh never back down revolt which had to have been made for a million dollars maybe mm. two two if we're being generous yeah I didn't particularly like the movie. I didn't think it was it was very well done, but I'm not going to sit there and just hammer on it. Mm. Kelly Madison, the director, is an up-and-coming director. Uh, I like some of the other stuff she's done. I want to see what she does. It's not, you know, Patrick Bromley from F This Movie mm. always. He, he does not enjoy beating up on, like, indie horror action movies because I mean, there's just no degree of, there's no challenge there on that. You know, but when something like No Time to Die comes out, and I know I'm in the minority on this still, but when that comes out and I fucking hate it, mm. uh, I'm okay being vocal about that because, yeah, like you just said, Bond can take it. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, although I have found that that Bond fans, maybe not so much. They might not <laughs> be as <laughs> No, Bond, Bond fans are very sensitive people. We, we are very, um, just because we know that there's always going to be a bad Bond around the corner, a, a Spectre. Um, so we're kind of a little bit, I think Bond fans can get very, very sensitive, weirdly sensitive, especially if it's a Bond that they, uh, a, um, an iteration of Bond that they love, like Craig, like Daniel Craig. Um, you start hitting on Daniel Craig and it's not Spectre, then they're going to go, but why? It was better than Spectre. And it's like, Yes, it was better than Spectre. I, I get that. That movie bent over backwards to go, look, Spectre was actually good. It's like, no, it wasn't. No, no, you can make that all. I love that stuff, but please do not tell me Spectre was a good movie. Um, 
but it's yeah it's just that, that kind of thing it's kind of fan bases are weird are weird creatures like I even felt bad about criticizing Red Notice even though I really didn't like it again a movie that can take it because I was like well they're trying to make it during COVID you know they were trying to figure things out I shouldn't really be that hard on a movie that had zero charisma with the three people who were meant to have all the charisma in the room and then I'm like yeah, but you cannot like something it's fine <laughs> yeah I mean that's and that that to me is that is the if you're going to be critical of a movie, a movie mm. like Red Notice, like, like, make no mistake, No Time to Die is a thousand percent better than Red Notice. Mm. I'm not putting those in the same category. Um, Red Notice is the kind of movie that you should criticize, right? Because it should know better. You've got three of the biggest stars in the world. You've got mm. a $200 million budget. And that CGI, that, that bullshit ass CGI is what you're bringing to the table like fuck you for that like that's and that's where I'm saying when I when I bag on a movie I'm bagging on that kind of movie not the two million dollar like you said two million dollars with some friends a six-pack and some pizza yeah no, it's um, it's exactly like that. So that's kind of what I appreciate about um, um, Action for Everyone is because it is that kind of thing. It's three guys who really get along, who can get feisty, who can kind of have all these different opinions. And sometimes it is respected. Or if you're Liam and it's no time to die, absolutely not. He's still, I think he's still going to try and get you over to the other island, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, so no, every, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please listen to it because it is so much fun. Um, the amount of times I've just been on the train just giggling my ass off at the, these three lunatics. Um, it's been a pure joy. So well done. And lunatics is, and that is the one thing that I do really like that I, I feel like when I listen back to it as I'm editing it, mm. we do capture that we're, we're idiots. Like we have, like Liam has cred and, and I guess Vice, Vice certainly has cred in his areas of expertise, like mm. military movies and stuff like that. But you get the three of us together and all that cred goes out the window. We're just idiots. <laughs> we're, we are just three idiots drinking beers on a Sunday afternoon shooting the shit about movies and that's really what we wanted to capture and so far you know not to pat myself on the back but so far I feel like that is what we capture is that kind of vibe we want people to feel like they're at a bar with us and we're just talking about what we've watched this week no you really really do and that is the um yeah because I keep imagining you guys are at a bar or sitting on a porch somewhere with beer and that's kind of the tone and I think it's um no, it's it's really good show. Like, well done. Just for the yeah, you three very intelligent people get together, and all of a sudden you're like um, just lunatics talking about movies that you love, and it's great. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Um, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, like I said, we'd do it. We'd do it if we had no listeners. But the fact that we do, and the fact that my friends, people like you uh who listen to it seem to really enjoy it that that makes that 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 makes me very very happy so thank you for that Lynn. no well done and with that we're going to go into something that's not actually oh well actually no action barely action at all but maybe one of the most wonderful movies ever made um of course that is frank capra's it's a wonderful life um now as I always like to imagine, we're sitting in a theater, curtains are opening, and Mike, if you were going to show a trailer, your first trailer for this movie, what would it be? So I really kind of struggled with the trailers this time. You know, normally I have uh, like 57 trailers ready to go, and, and this time I didn't, but I did I did settle on, on some. Mm-hmm. Um, so for my first trailer, 
Uh, quick disclaimer, um, the director of this movie has proven to be just an absolute reprehensible monster. So I, I, I want that to be known. Um, but I'm going with, you know, as we'll talk about, Capra has this reputation to the point that there's terms that have been developed based on his name. You've got yes. Capra-esque. Yes. Capra corn, Capra cheese. Mm. But, but, you know, Capra-esque is a sort of, I think that's a sort of legit term, even though most movies that are called Capra-esque kind of miss the point. Yes, they uh, do. <laughs> this is one that I think is actually a proper Capra-esque movie. Uh, and so my first trailer is going to be the 2000 uh, Brett Ratner, yeah. Brett Ratner directed uh, Nicolas Cage starring The Family Man. Kate? Come on, Dad, get up! It's Christmas, it's Christmas! Jeff, strong coffee. Where's my Ferrari? You got a Ferrari? Just tell me what's happening to me. This is a glimpse. A glimpse of what? This is not my beautiful house. This is very strange because this isn't my house. Ah. This is not my beautiful wife. Those, those aren't my kids. Oh. You're not bullying my dad, are you? I don't have time for this. I'm in the middle of a deal. Well, you're working on a new deal now, baby. Good Lord. Do you know why I work here? Because you're the best damn tire guy in the state of New Jersey. You must have needed this every day. You needed in Mad Wheels. Oh, perfect. I didn't even think of this. And yes, to Brett Redner. I'm actually annoyed how much movies I do enjoy of his. I really, because I kind of want him to be a bad, well, He's a horrendous human being that makes okay movies that I tend to enjoy, and I hate that. But this is a perfect trailer, and it's a Nicolas Cage movie. And um, so absolutely perfect. I haven't seen this in a while, though. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I haven't actually seen the movie in a while, but I rewatched the trailer just yeah. before we started recording. And, and it's also, you know, because I also try and make sure when I, when I pick these movies that I'm... You know, if we're in a theater, I also want to pick trailers that will play well. And I think this is a terrific trailer. First of all, it's a good portion of it is cut to um, Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. So you're already going to be good mood. <laughs> yeah. side if you're using Talking Heads in a trailer. But it, it is a very, very well done sort of, uh, you know, trailer in terms of giving you the whole idea of what the movie is about and stuff for those who don't know it involves Nicolas Cage basically it's an it's a wonderful life scenario he's this high-powered uh financier guy who wakes up one day because of Don Cheadle who is an angel it's not really clear but Don Cheadle basically gives him another life where instead of leaving his college sweetheart uh to go become this you know hedonistic financial marries her she's played by tia leone he finds out he's got these kids he's living instead of in uh, this fancy loft in manhattan he's living in new jersey um but it is for a movie directed by such an awful human being it is such a a heartwarming just wonderful movie without an absolutely terrific nicholas cage performance mm. um so I, I actually do need, to, I think it's going to go on the list to rewatch this year for Christmas because I, I, I haven't watched it for years either, but watching the trailer, I was like, fuck, I need to watch this movie again. No, you just reminded me of it because I don't think I've seen it for absolute forever. And um, it's one of those movies that I forget is a Christmas movie, even though it so is, because it's about this guy who 
kind of realizes, oh, families are good, um, which is, you know, the whole point of um, Christmas. Um, and yeah, so this is an absolutely perfect trailer. And um, yeah, that trailer is going to work absolutely gang gangbusters and absolutely set the mood. So um, I love that. And plus, yeah, Nicholas, God, how good is Nicolas Cage? Um, yeah, my my first trailer I don't think it's going to be a great trailer because it is also from 1946 but I kind of wanted to show uh, it's basically making a point I wanted to make with this um with it's a wonderful life so I'm going with William Wyler's uh 1946 the best years of our, our lives these are the great personalities who bring a memorable experience to glowing life Samuel Goldwyn's masterpiece the screenplay was written by Robert E. Sherwood, Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of Petrified Forest and Idiot's Delight. From this, William Wyler, who won the Academy Award for his direction of Mrs. Miniver, wove a pattern of motion picture magic with Myrna Loy and Frederick March living through the heartwarming second bloom of love. Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright feeling the breathtaking thrill of love at first sight. Hoagie Carmichael spreading his own brand of stardust. All of them together, giving all of us the best years of our lives. I really do love this movie. And this is kind of the movie that I think people in 1946 wanted, not necessarily what It's a Wonderful Life was serving up. Um, but it is just this kind of amazing movie of these three men coming back from World War II and just trying to resettle back into um, essentially a changed America. Um, and it's got some amazing performances, especially Frederick Marsh, uh, uh, Dana Andrews, I'm forgetting the actual um, soldier's name who did lose his hands in the war and then won an Academy Award. Um, he's amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, this has got Myrna Loy. Yeah, so it's not the best trailer, but I think it's gonna definitely kind of set the 1946 mood that I wanna um, put in front of it. So two things. Uh, oof, this movie is, and I don't mean oof in a negative way, but this movie is just, man, it is a journey. It yeah. is is such a tremendous piece of filmmaking. It is, it's one of those movies. Uh, there's two that I always think of uh, kind of when I think of this situation. Um, what, the other one also interestingly related to It's a Wonderful Life because it stars Donna Reed. Um, mm -hmm. I had heard so much about them. And when I finally saw them, I was like, oh shit, the hype is real. This one and from here to eternity. Yes. And them are just fucking masterpieces. Mm. Of um, I think this is a brilliant pick. I do also love, I, I really wanted to go with an older trailer. I thought about doing Mr. Smith Goes to Washington mm -hmm. because I also, when people complain about trailers spoiling the entire movie, I really want to show them trailers from the 30s and 40s where it's literally just the entire damn movie <laughs> as a trailer. But yes, um, though there is actually this Mr. Smith Go to Washington that they re-released a trailer and they've got that bomb, bomb, like um, Hans Zimmer music like, and it actually I'm makes it sound like a thriller. I'm like, what? Is happening <laughs> like on Zimmer music. I actually just watched that this morning when I was trying to pick my trailers, and I was like, "Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't recommend that one." That that's all. I just yeah, because I remember some um uh, Ken uh, from Ken Walker text Stranger fam fame um sort of suggested it, and he goes, "You have to play the one with the Hans Zimmer music. It's bonkers. This is not that movie. This movie is something else." And then they've just taken it and gone, "You're going to watch a thriller." It's like this. This is not a political thriller. This is is about a guy going to Washington to try and pass a law. What is happening? <laughs> oh, 
but yeah, I love, I love recommending best years of our lives. I think it's going to play great. Uh, if for no other reason, then hopefully it turns people on to that movie. Uh, yes. Speaking of, you know, shout out, uh, vice was on a, a podcast, my friend, Mike Natalie's podcast, mm-hmm. um, called you're missing out talking about the best years of our lives. Oh, wow. Don't know. Vice is a vice is a former soldier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he, and it's a terrific episode. Uh, so yeah, you're missing out the best years of our life. Uh, great, great episode to check out. I will actually have to check that one out. Cause that would be a fascinating point of view because yeah, this movie is an absolute journey of a movie and you just get so swept up in it because both William Wyler and Frank Capra actually went off to World War II to film it. They were part of this kind of propaganda machine. And um, I was actually going to choose this as, as a possible trailer, but I chose, um, Best Years was the five comeback from 2017, or I like to call it the Steven Spielberg soup, um, which looked at five directors who went over to film the war and came back changed. And also this different kind of perception. And a lot of what they filmed, the American government just wouldn't use because it's like it's it's war. Shit happened. Um, and they came back absolutely changed. And I think both these movies, Wonderful Life and Best Years, are absolute reflections of that. Um, so, yeah. So what is your second trailer? Really quick before I, I get into it, but yeah. also this is going to come up, you know, Jimmy Stewart did the yes, same. Yes, exactly. Which is so much in his performance. <laughs> Absolutely. So my second trailer, I'm going to go basic as hell for my second mm-hmm. trailer, but um, I think it'll play kind of well with both movies. Plus, I'm also just flying high after having watched uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, which might <laughs> end up being my favorite movie of the year. So. <laughs> second trailer is going to be for Chris Columbus's adaptation of Rent, one of my favorite musicals of all time. There are times when we're dirt broke and hungry and freezing, and I ask myself, why the hell am I still living here? All life is yours to miss, no A bunch of us are getting together tonight. Would you like to come with us? Sure. a movie that I know a lot of people didn't think was a very good adaptation. Mm. I happen to think it's pretty damn terrific. Um, And uh, I watch it every year for Christmas uh, because rent is also a Christmas movie. It is. Uh, (laughs) So that would be my second trailer is rent. That is perfect. Um, Because the first thing I did after I watched Tick, Tick, Boom twice um, was I rented rent it was because I had look 2021 has just basically been me becoming a musical fan and I think Tick Tick Boom really and in, in, in the heights just went okay this is I like the stuff let's just bring it on and what and I had never really heard the soundtrack to rent I didn't know much about it all I knew was sit in New York so watching it was kind of delightful because it has mostly the original cast, but the two they added in are uh, uh, Rosie, uh, Rosie Dawson and I'm forgetting her name and she's amazing as Tracy. Um, Tracy. Yes. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, it's this great kind of musical and it is very much that kind of live the moments you have. Every single song in that musical is about 
living the life that you have. Um, and it might not be the life that you want, or it may not, or you might be in a really shitty, shitty situation, but it's your life. And every single song just kind of reiterates re that. And no, because I was watching this kind of thing and I was just, Chris goes, Chris Columbus directing Rent, weird. And then you guys know, I lived in New York in 1990. I know this town in 1990. This is, I'm as much a New Yorker as Scorsese and Spike Lee, who also would attach to make this adaption. Um, so I know New York. And I think he does capture this kind of amazing set bound New York really, really well. Um, so no, absolutely perfect pick. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love it. It's, you know, I it's the musical that I've seen the most live. Oh, I've wow. Seen yeah. Live, live, live. Um, it's uh, one thing I will suggest, Linz, uh They also recorded and released as a movie the final Broadway performance. Um, I think it's I think the proper title is I think it is Rent, the final Broadway performance. Yeah. Or like on Broadway. Mm. You should check that out too because then you can actually see the the proper musical without the adapt the, the adapted yes punk. yeah i think I, yeah I, i've heard of that so i need to actually think that because that would be it would be an interesting watch because all my musical kind of knowledge is from the movie adaptions um and not necessarily watching the musicals themselves so um no that's that that is a definite um for me and also if you haven't seen tick tick boom yet it's on netflix please watch it because it's amazing <laughs> It is um, all these musical nerds making a movie about musical nerds. And um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I, I know that it's popular to hate on Lin-Manuel Miranda now. He's become somehow, I don't know, somebody that we're supposed to hate on. But come on, man. We got In the Heights and Tick, Tick, Boom from him in the same year. Like, no, sorry. I'm just, I, I cannot. I cannot sanction that buffoonery of, of hating on Lin-Manuel Miranda. I just I, can't. I can't do it either. I'm like, he's just a big nerd. I mean, come on. He's, he's sitting there in every single interview going, I'm sitting here. All I do, oh, I'm just a big nerd who just wants to write music and you're interviewing me. What the hell is happening? Um, yeah, that's the vibe I get off him and I love it. So I do not, I do not, I can't sanction that either. I mean, come on. It's, it's two, two of my favorite movies are from him this year. So it's... <laughs> the uh, documentary that came out last year about his college improv group uh it's called we are freestyle love supreme mm. no i haven't it's so good it's him uh like there's so many people involved in that group that have gone on to become uh famous doing mm. other stuff it's a terrific documentary it, it, it's again it's just a delightful wonderful uh it, here in the u.s it's on hulu mm. i'm not where it will be in Australia, but um, I'm sure it's somewhere. Uh, Most likely Disney Plus, oddly, because they've kind of combined Hulu and Disney Plus together in Australia. So you, so Printed is like right next to Mickey Mouse, which I kind of love. <laughs> yeah, we are Freestyle Love Supreme. Watch it, you'll love it. I will definitely do that. Um, right, okay, so for my final trailer, I am also, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to go for this one. This is kind of a basic pick, even though I don't, yeah, no, it's kind of a mix between Wonder It's a Wonderful Life and um, Christmas Carol because you just cannot get out of that goddamn town. Of course, I'm going Groundhog Day from 1993. In Groundhog Day. In Groundhog Day. I'm reliving the same day over and over. Bill. Ned 
Ryerson. Dang! Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? At first, he was a little anxious. Bill? What? Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. But now, we could do whatever we want. He's discovering the possibilities. Don't you worry about cholesterol? Why? And living life mm. like there's Phil? no tomorrow. Phil Connors! Ned! I freaking love this movie. It's my favorite um, Bill Murray performance. Um, I love how dark this movie gets. Um, I kind of sad that this kind of caused a rift between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. Um, but no, it's a great trailer and this is the one I'm showing. <laughs> and it's, it's perfect. It plays perfect. Um, you know... It's actually, so one of the movies that gets most trotted out is like the Frank Capra modern movie is The Majestic, Frank Darabont's The yes. Majestic. Mm. In a lot of ways, kind of somewhat similar to Groundhog Day, right? Mm. And not, yeah. there's not a time loop component, mm. but this guy goes to this town, but Groundhog Day just does it so much better. And we've we've certainly had an endless barrage of these time loop movies some of which have been terrific like i'll fully admit that there are ones that i like better than groundhog oh Day. wow yeah um like tom cruise's edge of tomorrow and yes. uh, happy death day mm -hmm. i enjoy but there's no question the groundhog day is is the sort of the grandfather of that and every movie that tries that concept is going to be living under its shadow uh, and I think it'll lead perfectly right into It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, yeah, because I think there's a magic you have to pull with a time loop movie about what moments you emphasize from the day or and which ones you skip and then which ones you change. And I think the ones you two mentioned, Edge of Tomorrow and um, Happy Death Day, do those perfectly. Like just the moments that you want to see again that just kind of reinforce what's happening. And then those little the things you can skip and the things that you go back to, it just it's a it's a very specific editing trick. And both of them do it really well. Groundhog Day, I tend to love just because it's a movie I grew up with. It's a movie I watched a lot. Um, just being a big Bill um, Murray fan. And yeah, it kind of does. It kind of just captures that thing of going into its wonderful life of not being able to leave this town because every time you do, you either wake up the next morning or friggin' Potter's doing something awful again. So you have to goddamn stay. Um, it's... Yeah, so with that, we are going to be getting into It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Well, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Santa Mandel hogwash. I wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog. Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. This is what I wished for. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Now, I know you're a big Capra guy. Like you have even said on the cobwebs with um, Daniel that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington kind of um, made, uh, influenced you to want to be a lawyer is probably the 
butchering why I'm saying it, but so Kepra's, you're a big Kepra guy. Massive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to ask me to rank my favorite directors, it's Raimi, John Woo, Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for the longest time, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was actually my favorite movie, quite mm-hmm. frankly, until it was dethroned by Spider-Man 2. Um, so, so there's there's a lot of, you know, in my mind, Capra and Raimi are are so intertwined in my, like you said, DNA, mm. uh, which is part of why I started thinking about their similarities, not their differences, because obviously Frank Capra never made something like Evil Dead. Uh, but yeah, I am a big Capra guy. And one of the reasons I'm a big Capra guy is because I think he's truly underappreciated. He is, you know, we, I mentioned Capra corn, Capra cheese. Mm. He is so misunderstood by modern sort of film viewers. And in particular, It's a Wonderful Life is misunderstood. Oh, by, yes. <laughs> you know, not, not, and, and certainly not. I mean, I think most film critics and, 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 and film fans you know, can, can figure out what it's a wonderful life is about, but yeah, it just, it has this whole thing of it's this wholesome uplifting Christmas movie and it's cheesy. And it's like, yeah, if you watch the last five minutes and nothing else, but if you watch (laughs) the rest of the movie, it is, it is a two hour torture porn movie. Like the entire is. Is let's watch, you know, we joked when we did the uh, the Evil Dead 2 episode, you know, how much can Bruce or Sam Raimi put Bruce Campbell through? That's kind of what this is only in 1946. It's how much hell can Frank Capra put George Bailey, a.k.a. you know, slash Jimmy Stewart. Yes. Through for an entire movie, because this is an endless parade of torture. Yes. For really is because i know in uh america well america because it's an american movie but because when it fell out of um public it fell into public domain so i don't know which channel decided to pick it up and play it 24 7 but when cable tv became a thing um this was played all the time the same thing happened with the christmas story wasn't it that those two movies were essentially played on loop around the christmas season or is that an exaggeration well no um so a Christmas story never fell into public domain, mm. but it was owned by Turner Broadcasting. Uh, yes. Owned by Ted Turner. So TBS, which is a, was a, it, I, it's probably still around. I don't know. I, mm. I cut four years ago, <laughs> but TBS would, yeah, literally broadcast a Christmas story on loop. And for It's a Wonderful Life, you had all these. So here, I don't know the history of TV in Australia. So I, if I'm saying obvious things, please tell me to shut up but you know here in the u.s we had sort of two types of channels we Mm. had vhf vhf channels which were your cbs nbc abc yeah and then subcategory that was called uhf which were your local channels oh yes okay yeah hence the weird al yankovic movie yes Uh, And because it had fallen into the public domain, these local channels could get it for free. And so it was really these local channels throughout the nation that were just running it constantly because they were, you know, they lived on public domain stuff that Hmm. they, 
Night of the Living Dead, very similar situation. It became so popular because these UHF channels were just showing it constantly. And so, yeah, around Christmas, you could literally, you know, click your dial back in the day and probably find a local channel that was showing It's a Wonderful Life. And that's really where it built because the thing that a lot of people don't know is this was not a big hit when it came out. It was actually considered a major misfire. Yes. On- no, that's yeah, was one of the reasons why I wanted to show Best Years of Our Lives because that was a huge hit. And this is kind of the Best Years um, was the movie that the public wanted to see. I mean, this was post-war and I was going to go into a whole big thing about how I think Capra is like the greatest Depression era director that ever was. Unfortunately, when he's trying to make a movie in 1946, it's not going to translate into what people kind of want. But yeah, no, um, Australia and New Zealand have a much more simplistic. We had our, um, we had like a, um, BBC-esque, like Australia, it's called the ABC, which is still going, and New Zealand had channels one and two, which were both government-run until the third channel came in. I remember it, actually, that New Zealand's tiny. Um, But the government channels would show a lot of the free stuff as well because they were always on a very specific budget, Um, especially sort of back in the day um, when it was more fully um, government-owned and operated. So... I don't remember It's a Wonderful Life showing up ever on TV, but I do remember a lot of other kind of movies that would just get played constantly on a loop. Like they got them and they're like, no, we're going to play this like every single month because it's there. Um, So yeah, I completely get that. And um, it's watching it now, I can kind of see why this misfired in 1946. Um, But I can see why it has, because the best years of our lives is actually really hard to find at the moment, which I think is sad because I think it's a masterpiece. Um, But I think I can, but I understand why it didn't, I kind of made its money back, but it kind of doomed the studio who made it um, and almost ended Frank Capra's career. I think, I don't think he's quite the same after this. Um, And I, but I can see why this kind of has grown in estimation because I think once you get past the Capra cheese, whatever that is, because I don't think Capra wasn't a, a a cheesy director at all um I think when you see how deep and meaningful and just dark this movie is um when the first time I saw it I was not expecting the whole um suicide plot line at all like I that blew me away it's like he's gonna do what now (laughs) it was um no it was not the movie I expected because I only knew the last five minutes um so no watching this for the first time like 10 years ago completely surprised me well, and that's the thing with Capra is is so many of his movies, they do have uplifting endings, but he makes his characters earn those endings. You know, I, I when I was talking, Mr. S- well, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Like Jimmy Stewart goes through hell in that one. Uh, meet John Doe. Literally similar to It's a Wonderful Life. The yeah. end of it is Gary Cooper is about to jump off a building and in like the last two minutes of the movie, Barbara Stanwyck convinces him not to. So, you know, Capra, Capra's movies are so much darker and, and so much more real and willing to go there. Mm. They get any credit for. Um, and, and this is a perfect example. This is... So, <clears throat> Mr. Smith is still my favorite Capra movie, but this might be the most perfect capper movie because all of his bag of tricks is on display here um you know i i tweeted out just before we started recording Mm. i literally 
finished watching this right before I jumped on the mic. <laughs> the whole Pottersville sequence is from everything from from George on the bridge to when he comes back and 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 Bert's there. The way Capra shoots that is just pure nightmare fuel. Oh, it is. Everything. Uh- Sorry, go ahead. I was about to just agree with you. It is completely nightmare fuel. You are in, um, it's meant to be a nightmare. And the more he's trying to convince people that they know him and the more that they think he's just a lunatic and the more frenzy it, it becomes, it's, um, no, it, it's pure nightmare. It's, yeah, it's a horror movie. It turns into a horror movie. It straight up does. When he goes back to to his and Mary's house and, uh, and, and Bert and Ernie are there, um, you know the way Capper shoots it. There, it's they're all they're all backlit, so everything is just in deep shadows. It looks like a friggin' film noir yeah. movie. You know? and, and 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 the nothing up to that point had really looked like that in the movie. And so it's one of those things where Capper completely changes his filming style. He's using a lot more sort of lower angles and stuff like that. He's really just bringing out every every golf club in the bag to make this like 10, 15 minute sequence. So unbelievably upsetting that, that, you know, you earn it when George comes back. That's why the ending works because he's literally put us through the 1946 version of an Eli Roth movie. And so when we're not in that hellscape anymore and, and you get that, that just, effusive jovial jimmy stewart bert my mouth's bleeding my mouth's bleeding you 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 feel such a sense of relief yes catharsis that it is just it is so meticulously well done it it is i and i think this is the thing that people don't like about capra he is a master emotional manipulator oh yeah and I think that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But the problem is, or the thing is, that's what we want out of movies. We want yeah. to be manipulated. And if we're going to be manipulated, then let's be manipulated by the best. <laughs> this is completely, I agree with that statement. Because I, as we'll get into with um, Spider-Man, I, in my tw- mid-20s, decided that I hated anything sentimental. I thought it was phony. I thought it was false. I was a punk um, and I became a punk very late in my life, Um, but it was kind of this, um, I didn't want to be manipulated. I still do. Sometimes if a movie gets me, I'm like, you son of a bitch. Um, But yeah, why wouldn't you want to be manipulated by one of the masters who knows how to turn your emotions on a dime? And that whole, I love the scene when he finally sees Pottersville for the first time and you see the sign and then you just see all these fluorescent lights just bursting on the black and white screen. And it looks horrific. Um, this is not Bedford Falls. This is not kind of this lower economic middle-class kind of town. It's now the sleaze fest. And you see like poor um, Gloria Graham being dragged out of a club um, where the um, housing and loan, I uh, forget what the the the, um, the building is, is used to be his, his um, homes and loan thing and mortgage broker. And it's just this kind of, yeah, it is an Eli Roth movie. You're just like going, oh my God. God, what is happening? Um, so when you do get back to the house and he's, I love when he runs into the living room and he's saying hello to the people who's about to arrest him because- I'm going to jail, it's 
great. I've got a jail. It's great. And it's like, what? Because what he just experienced and seeing what the town was like, um, if he had never been born, then yeah, it's kind of this amazing moment of elation when everything's still going to shit. Nothing's actually changed. Like his mouth is still bleeding. He's still in this exact same situation. Nothing's gotten better, but yet he's home. He's back with his wife. He's back with his kids. It's even if everything in that moment's still completely shit. I love it so much because that, yeah, you're right. This movie earns every single moment. I love the journey with the house. When you see it first dilapidated, then they make it into a home and then you go back and you realize, oh, that house is still the ghost house that it was in the beginning. It's it's so gut-wrenching. Well, and I and and again, you know, speaking of earning it, I love, you know, they're throwing rocks through it early, but then once again, you know, the whole thing of of George gives up everything always all the mm. time. But the way Mary, you know, on their wedding night, they're supposed to go to their honeymoon and the way just immediately she's able to turn that house into a home. Mm by setting up some candles and making a dinner and i love the scene of i mean i'm going to be all over the place talking about this movie but i love the scene of she's she's doing the rotisserie chicken because she's hooked it up to the turntable yes and, she, <laughs> and and but just the way both stewart and reed play that it's like yes we're home you know and and i love that you know after that, she says, you remember when we were throwing rocks through this window, this is what I wished for. And mm-hmm. it just, it's so well done. And, and Capra is so good. And, and I'm not giving credit. I do need to, let me look it up really quick while we're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I do need to give credit to Joseph Walker and Joseph Birock, the yes. cinematographers mm-hmm. on um, Because the way they are able to use multiple different sort of almost film styles throughout this movie to convey the various things is really just a sight to behold it's just stunning yeah one of my favorite shots in the movie is when by the way donna reed i mean okay jay this is one of my famous uh favorite james stewart performances but god donna reed in this movie is incredible um yeah avoid donna reed because i don't want to come across as obnoxiously thirsty but oh my god donna reed in this movie lens she- uh, uh, i mean this movie has her and gloria graham in it and oh my god these are some beautiful women i mean yeah and the fact that they're both amazing just adds on top of it is incredible <laughs> just luminous stunning oh, um but yeah my favorite shot is when donna reed opens the door um George Bailey's coming up to see her. His mother's convinced her to go see her, but he's being a dick. I love he's so nicking her in that scene. But when she opens the door and the camera's just over her shoulder looking at George Bailey by the gate. And there's something about that shot through the door. I love a good doorway shot, but that is such a beautiful, beautiful shot. And there's so many of those in this movie. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, we've got uh, Dimitri um, Tomikin back from, um, I didn't notice the music as much in It's a Wonderful Life compared to, um, I, my God, we did an episode on it. I can't remember the goddamn name. High Noon. In High Noon. Um, but it is just everything. Yeah, we're, as we'll get into, all these movies have the best of the best people working behind the scenes as well as in front of it. Um is I'll geek over when we get to Spider-Man 2. But yeah, Joseph Walker and um, Joseph Bjork are 
doing amazing work. This is a gorgeous movie. And you're right. This movie keeps changing styles as you go through it, depending on when in the story that you are, because you got to remember it's um, these angels actually telling the story of um, George Bailey. And so like any kind of epic story, you do change kind of the flow and where you are and who's telling it. Um, so I, I love that about it. And um, yeah, everything about this movie just works. I think when you say this is the most perfect Capra movie, um, I would completely agree with that because it is all his tricks. It is all his kind of what he's bringing back from the war is in this movie. It's kind of about this looking back at what America was before the war, um, which why I, which is why I think it didn't hit with audiences. I think they wanted to go, no, we're America. We just won. We just kicked everyone's ass. And now we're going to move forward. And we have like, it's going to be this amazing 1950s with technology and washing machines and the space race and all this kind of thing. And Capra's going, yeah, but look at what America actually is or what I think America is. And it's the small town, immigrant community, evil bankers, and this guy called George Bailey, who's just trying to keep the whole thing together. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> well, it's, it's almost a miracle they didn't get blacklisted, right? Because oh, it was investigated, wasn't it? Yeah. Because this is, I mean, it is a socialist movie, right? Hmm. The idea of this sort of communitarian, you know, as, as George says, uh, when there's the run on the the building and loan and and he's he's all about you know i'm helping you you know potter wants to charge you rent he wants to overprice you he wants to put you in these slums i'm helping you get into a home you know i don't know what it's like in australia but here in america rent prices are going through the roof oh yeah and, mm. you know we've got a housing crisis going on right now and it and i love i especially love that scene with the run on the bank where, um, you know, the one guy's like, ah, $242. And he's like, fine. He finally gives it to him because Mary gives up their wedding money. So they, they, because Mary's also just an amazing fucking human being in oh, this movie. She is. She is just like the ultimate. She's even a, she's even a better person than George Bailey. Cause I think George Bailey is always trying to be a better person. Mary just is a better person. Like everything she does is just, yeah, especially the scene when he's getting angry with the kids. Like you can tell that she's circling him. She's like, I know something's wrong, but right now I need to protect my kids from you because you're being an asshole. Yep. Um, even though he, even though she knows he's in great pain and knows something's really wrong. She's like, okay, in this moment, I'll make sure the kids are okay. Then I can work on you. She's just, she's an angel. She's amazing. <laughs> she is. She is. Um, and we'll certainly talk more about her, but but one of the things that I love in that, that run on the bank scene is, you know, he gets the 200 for it, but then he convinces the other people. It's like, now how much do you actually need? They're like yes. 20. And then the one lady comes up and she says 1750 and Jimmy Stewart, like kisses her. He, he, you know, and I didn't know that that was not planned. So <laughs> she was supposed to say 17 and, and Capra told her, say some random number like 1750 and she said it and Stuart was so taken off guard that was actually like a spontaneous kiss on his part um but it works so wonderfully in the movie because it is already sort of establishing the biggest problem with George is a he's always looking on the horizon you know yes. to, to Toyota, uh where he's going mm. not what he's doing you know yes, and, yes. Uh, and he cannot see that people love him 
uh, hmm. because other than that douchebag that wanted his $242, everybody else is willing to work with George here. They're like, well, here's what I need. You know, they're scared. They're panicked, but they know they're going to be okay with George. And that's what I love about Capra. Capra is so much about the struggle of trying to be a good person in a world that is literally rallying against you to crush yes. you destroy you um and it's not cheesy it's not sentimental it's inspiring and hopeful because capra and in this one especially capra did go to war Stuart did go to war they saw the worst of humanity yep they came back wanting to know that the only way that you know, it's that old line. I can't even remember. It's a cliched line, but, um, you know, the true evil in the world is when good men do nothing. I'm, I'm butchering it, but that, and that's basically Frank Capra's entire ethos. It, it really is. Um, cause my favorite line in the movie is it's toward the end when you've got the world war two montage and it's talking about how George's brother's gone off to war and is becoming a war hero. And then you've got, Oh, and uh, George was at home fighting the war as well. But then all you hear him at the, at the savings and loan going, God sakes, there's a war going on. Cause you can tell there's another run at the bank <laughs> and he's trying to do the same thing again. And it's just him trying to it's kind of that um there's this Tolstoy line that I love it opens Anna Karenina it sort of says um a happy family looks exactly the same but a miserable one is completely unique I'm butchering the line it's not the exact line but I think that's true um for George Bailey which is why it works so well he's so specific yet um in his sadness because he's always looking on the horizon he's never looking at where he is um that you ultimately just get him and he's just I mean, I think in my letterbox thing, I said, everyone is George Bailey because everyone kind of is. But there's this kind of thing where he's just, he wants, he's always working towards something, but he doesn't, it's always nebulous. It's never, he never quite know what this thing is. And even though he wants to leave Bedford Falls, but he has the most amazing wife in the world. He has the most amazing kids. Even when they're being annoying, they're being sweet. Um, and he just, if he could just, but he's kind of fighting this battle of, trying to keep this town together because one thing I love because Capra was uh born of Italian immigrants I don't know if he was born in Italy some yeah um so he kind of saw that tenement struggle that kind of everything is going to try and beat you into submission um and it always reflects in his movies I mean my favorite is it happened one night because it's just that but he captures that kind of depression era of everyone's trying to beat you into submission you have to stand up and at least be the only thing you can do is stand up and be do the right thing. Um, and that is what George Bailey is trying to do again and again, even though Potter is constantly to the point he's trying to have him arrested for a mistake. It's kind of, it's just like, Oh, Oh my God, you, you're fighting this, your syphilis rolling the rock up the hill constantly, but you want to see him do that every single time because you know, it's the right thing to do. If I went on a weird tangent there. <laughs> No, you're, you're totally, it's not a weird tangent because yeah. you're totally right. Because the, the other thing I, so when I was in college, like many, you know, you talked about, you were a punk and, and stuff like that. I mm -hmm. like a lot of goth kids got into existential philosophy and uh, you know, particularly uh, the work of Albert Camus. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. You know, it, in his, his famous novel, the plague, 
which really is his whole point. Cause there's a lot of different strains of existential philosophy. There's mm. Sartre and Camus and stuff, but Camus sort of whole thing was, I'm going to actually, you know, the, the best way that I've ever heard Camus described is actually from an episode of angel, uh, the, the Buffy spinoff, yeah. uh, because as much as he's a bastard, Joss Whedon could occasionally write good dialogue, um, which is Angel has a crisis of conscience and then has an epiphany and realizes there is no God, there is no higher power, nothing we do matters. Therefore, all that matters is what we do. If, yes. there, is, if there is no plan, if there is no afterlife, if there is no grand scheme, then a single act of human kindness is a fucking miracle. Yes. And and Camus kind of understood that because his whole thing was, you are going to lose the fight, mm. but you still have to fight. The world, life, nature, all of it will destroy you, mm. but you still have to fight. And that's what Capra understands that so completely because his heroes never fucking win. No. <laughs> The thing I said to Daniel when we talked about Mr. Smith goes to Washington, they don't actually win. At best, it's a push. You know, they get back to the status quo, but they fight the fight because they know that's what they need to do. And, and it's like this movie. I mean, yeah, it's a glorious ending and you hear the bell and an angel got his wings and they're all kind of huddled together as a family and it's Christmas. But George just got the money to keep the savings and loan going. It's he's he's got the money to be able to fight Potter. That's all it is. It's not he's taken Potter down. Um, like my favorite SNL skit is actually the what happens after it's a wonderful life with Dana Carvey as as um Jimmy James Stewart, um, because they beat the shit out of Potter. Um, because that's what you kind of want. You want him to be taken down, but Potter isn't taken down, he's doing his thing. Okay, so he didn't get him this time, but he's going to scheme to try and get him again. So, yeah, you've just been taken back to the status quo. You're basically where you were halfway through the movie. But the only thing is, is that James Stewart is not getting arrested and he is in a much better place um, than he was a few hours ago. That is all. But that in itself is a huge victory. And I think um, that a movie shows you that those small victories are why you do the good things is kind of amazing and a miracle in itself because most movies have to have the conclusive i'm killing alan rickman i've tossed him off a building so that's done it's not this kind of oh i can live to fight another day which is the ending of it's a wonderful life yeah yeah, yeah it literally every you know i mean that's like mr smith goes to washington like smith loses yeah passes out they are ready it's only because and, and the one thing that capra did believe in is the sheer the ability of good people to literally force the world to change around them yes and that's what happens because he he you know i guess spoilers for 1939's with mr smith goes <laughs> Uh, you know, he convinces Claude Rains to admit to everything, mm. but that's not, that's not because of you like Smith. There's no win there for him. Yes. Claude Rains confesses and, and we get the caption where the bad guy, you know, gets taken down and stuff, but it's, it, it's, 
it's not like this big fist pumping victory where everything falls into place. Here's the same thing. Yes, he's got enough money to not go to jail and to keep the stupid old building and loan that he hates yes. afloat. Like, yeah. like everything he's wanted for the whole movie is to get out of this town and get out of the building alone. And the victory is he gets to keep the building and loan. <laughs> yes. Like, like, how do you watch this movie and be like, this is cheesy and sentimental? Like, this is fucking heartbreaking. I, um, I wonder t- if it's self-protection because, I mean, yeah, when you watch A Wonderful Life and actually kind of get, it's very, yeah, because he's he's just working in a place that he hates. It's never going to end. And he's probably going to pass it down to his son, who's also going to hate the freaking building alone. Um, and but I wonder if that's sort of self-protection because I think a lot of this movie is about the dreams that didn't happen, which everyone has. Everyone kind of has those regrets. But what this movie is sort of saying is that, yeah, if you got your way, would you have the life that you have now? And would you want to give it up? Which is kind of the thing of the movie, but you're kind of watching this going, yeah, I hate my, my job that I keep going back and giving my all to, even though it causes me pain. And then all of a sudden that's the victory. I think it's one of its self-protection thing that you go, oh, that's just cheesy sap. It's 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 the sentimental kind of bollocks. But then and what if it's like a self-protection thing, like going, nope, I can't, I can't go there emotionally because otherwise I'm gonna be on the floor like I am every single time I watch this movie. Then I'm just kind of blind and just like going, I need someone to pick me up because I I can't move. <laughs> I I literally this time I literally curled up on my couch. <laughs> Like Kelsey was doing on, she was doing it because you know she's seen it. We watch it all the time, and she's yeah. like, and I'm like, I gotta watch this before I record with Linz. And yeah. she's like, she had some stuff she wanted to do a workout today, so she's working out. And she comes out, and I'm literally like, in the fetal position on the couch, just fucking sobbing. Yeah, this time, um, because I don't. Maybe it's 2021, but this movie hit me harder this time than it ever has because mm-hmm. it, it's like it's kind of a miracle. And this is what I also love about Capra is his heroes. They're not great people. They're, you know, they're not fucking captain America or, or, or that they're, they're normal schmucks. Yeah. And we are now going on year three of a fucking pandemic. And yet somehow we all managed to still get out of bed every day and pay our bills and, kiss our significant others and hug our kids if we have them Mm. and do what we need to do well not all of us but certainly our circle of friends (laughs) to make the world a slightly fucking better place Mm. um and and i i just feel like that we you know the world has become such a shit show that we are all frank capra characters now i i think we are because i remember like I'm not trying, I'm not going to say this to denounce anyone's pain, but depression and anxiety, uh, especially in the last two years, because we are heading into three, is very common. So I think this movie is going to hit harder just because everyone's, everyone's been through some shit. But I remember a few years ago when I was at my worst, someone said to me, you're clinically depressed, but you you can go to work every day. That's huge. And I got pissed because I'm like, that's what you're meant to do. Like, you're meant to get up, you're meant to go to work, you're meant to do all these things again to make the try in the world better don't tell me that's an achievement but i think we need to sit back and go no that's a fucking achievement um it's because it's hard especially going into a three yeah i god 
why do humans always do this? It'll be over by Christmas. It never is. Um, and this is this is going to be coming on for another couple of years because there's different variants. It's going to be shit. And we just kind of need to, yeah, get up, hug our kids, kiss our significant other, go to work or do what we can to try and make the world a little better. And that is really hard. It's not an easy thing to just get up and go and do something. Um, and I wish I'd given myself a little bit more credit back then. Um, but I, but that's what I thought you had to do. So that wasn't like a thing I even thought about, but it's just, but that's kind of George Bailey. And I think, yeah, I was just, I was sitting on the couch. I couldn't, after this movie, I couldn't move and I need to get up. I had to go into a Christmas party. I'm like going, I don't think I can be socialized at the moment. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. Um, especially after watching this where my head's full of like George Bailey and this amazing movie and the, and the images and this, the absolute me just breaking down and watching it. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think this movie shows that to do the smallest thing is an achievement and you need to give yourself credit for that. The fact that he made this community of people that are willing to help him um, go, no, we will give you the money. So this place that we love and so we can keep our homes and then we can kind of live the the um, the smallest slice of the American dream um, is kind of incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I went off. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, I, I co-sign everything you just said. You know, I used to, um, when, well, it's actually funny. My depression has been worse now than it's ever been. But when I thought it was at its worst, I used to always joke uh, as a defense mechanism that I was pissed off that I lived through the night, right? Like every yeah. morning angry and i'm like god i lived through the night again uh, i guess i should have said trigger warning for for people but you know now i wake up and i'm like i lived through the night great yeah. i'm awake i can get out of bed this is a day i can get out of bed and that that is george's problem in mm. this george doesn't realize and he also doesn't realize that you never know what little bullshit trivial thing you might do that will have a profound impact on somebody else yes and, and so it is one of those things where it's like i i think all frank capra ever wanted in his movies he wasn't trying to be cheesy he wasn't trying to be sentimental he was just trying to say maybe we shouldn't be fucking dick smacks to one another <laughs> yes maybe we should just try a little bit of kindness every once in a fucking while. Yeah. And God damn, is that something that is in short supply right now as it was in 1946 coming out of the war? Yes. You know? um, and so there, there's such a profound anger in his work about the, and that's one of the things that I think people really miss about Capra. He is angry he is so angry about the injustices in the world and the way we treat one another and those come through in all like meet john doe is literally about him saying we need a socialist revolution essentially you know because he's so angry about the capitalists and the business people and the way they corrupt and destroy the system and mr smith goes to washington is all about the way business uh influences and and destroys politics and yes. this is about the way potter the fucking bankers and the capitalists destroy the american dream like 
Frank Capra is so goddamn angry. And, and I don't think people give that enough, ever give that enough credit when they're watching his movies. But he believes that we can change it. We just need to stop being so fucking awful to one another. No, because it's weird. Because I think this movie was actually investigated a little for anti-American leanings because it was after the war and suddenly America needed, like every single kind of society needs another. So now it was going to be the red threat. Um, This movie is, maybe we should have a socialist revolution. Maybe it wouldn't be that bad. Maybe we could just be nice for one another and help one another. We're not going to, be ruled by the likes of Potter um and they were like hang on a minute you're saying bankers are bad and it's like yeah bankers are assholes um I mean it's like every single country I mean Australia had a huge royal commission a couple of years ago um because the banks were being skeezy um not surprisingly and every single major bank got um well they only got a hand slap so it wasn't like a thing but they actually had to have public opinion was so strong against the major banks is that they went, oh shit, we need a PR thing. We need to actually implement some policies. We need to actually do this thing because people are pissed at us. And now they're, uh, yeah, we need to actually, it was actually kind of didn't do the whole thing, but there was like a surface thing of like, oh shit, we need to appear to a change. Um, and there have been new laws in for investing and that kind of thing. So there was a little bit done, but it was just kind of fascinating that this was a time when you couldn't say anything bad about the banks, even though only barely a decade ago, they were throwing people out of their homes. I mean, they were emptying communities from like Oklahoma um, with the Dust Bowl. And so people had to immigrate and they were essentially refugees. And it's this kind of amazing thing. I mean, even the most, one of the most conservative directors in Hollywood working with John Ford made an incredibly socialist movie in The Grapes of Wrath. Um, And this was only barely a decade before. So, and he was angry. He was coming back from the war. He's seen all this shit. And all of a sudden he's coming back and it's like, this is the America that we're getting. No, 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 no. We need to remind people about, I need to remind people about how I see everything. And the fact that um, people now gravitate toward this movie so much is because, yeah, they're like, yeah, no, I, I see this every day. Just can we just be nice? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that sounds so cliche to just be like, oh, if we're nice. But the thing the thing is, is is with George is it's not just when we talk about being nice now, we're usually talking about fake platitudes, right? Yes. George backs it up with actions. Yes. He does the right thing. He he sacrifices everything because he understands that he has responsibilities, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is a term that's going to come up when we get to our second movie for sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, the other movie takes with great power kind of great responsibility and then makes a movie about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and, and, and that's the thing is, I just, I I get so defensive of Capra because, and I will admit, I have seen it less in the last like 10 years or so. Mm. And probably part of that's because the TikTok kids don't even watch old movies. Um, no, you know. they surprisingly don't like Madonna nude and they don't like black and white movies. I'm just like, like oh no. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, you know, when I became a Capra fan, so I think I probably saw, I mean, I saw It's a Wonderful Life when I was a kid, but it was really Mr. Smith that made me the Capra fan that I was. Um, that would have been, you know, 1993, probably 1992, somewhere around yeah. there. And um, 
I used to see that criticism all the time. And it just, I've never understood it. I've never gotten it because he goes, man, he goes hard. Frank Capra goes so fucking hard. We talk about like, oh, I didn't expect that movie to go there in like modern parlance. There isn't a fucking movie made in 2021 that goes there as hard as It's a Wonderful Life does. No, it doesn't. And what I love going back to sort of George being nice is, yeah, he is nice, but he's also kind of an asshole at times. Like he's not, as you keep saying, he's not perfect. Like the scene where he's, um, he kisses Mary for the first time. He's negging her for that whole entire scene. Like she's basically, she's drawn a picture of him with a lasso around the moon going, she's pretty much going, I'm in love with you. And he's being the biggest dick because he tried to hit on Gloria Graham. It didn't work. He got embarrassed and now he's fine. I'll go see Mary who's, I don't get how Mary's fate when George, if George isn't born, I think is hilarious. Cause I'm like, going, that's not the, anyway, um, she's a luminous. She's amazing. Um, and she's throwing himself at him and it, he's just, he's nigging her. He's being an asshole. And she's just like, going, well, I'm here. You can be here or not. I'm actually dating someone else. Um, so it's not like the biggest thing in the world, even though it probably is to her. Um, and then he finally kisses her. And then I think he's kind of, then he realizes, oh, actually, this is the perfect woman I need to be with. But yeah, he's, he can be very mean to the, and I mean, when George Bailey goes angry, it, he reminds me a lot of my father who never went off the handle that often, but when he did, it was very George Bailey-esque. And it's a terrifying thing to watch as a very mild-mannered man. Well, suddenly things have built up, built up, built up, and it kind of explodes. And it's kind of that that scene with the kids when he's really upset because he knows everything's falling apart and he has a right to that. But when he really starts needling in on the kids, I'm like, Ooh, this is when dad would go, would, would go off. Um, and it's, yeah, he's not perfect, but he knows he has responsibilities and he knows he has the, these responsibilities required to do the right thing, even though he does not want to. So it comes so these little nastinesses come out in different ways. And it's kind of a really nice juxtaposition to watch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that scene. So a couple of things about that scene where he finally first kisses Mary. Mm -hmm. One, uh, when I was doing some research for this, I didn't realize this. That was his first on-screen, Jimmy Stewart's first on-screen kiss since coming back from the war. Yes. Terrified. Yeah. And so it was actually basically unscripted, more mm -hmm. or less. Capra just gave him room to work and Donna Reed went with it. And apparently the censors, they had to cut it because it, it was apparently such a passionate kiss that it couldn't get past the, the censor, the, the, you know, the uh, old age. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, yeah, he's a fucking dick throughout a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, when I talk about that he's a good person, like, don't get me wrong, he's a fucking dick through a lot of this movie when mm. he's, he is angry. Um, which is going to, again, tie in very nicely because Peter Parker is also a fucking dick yes. a lot of the time. And that is the burden of being somebody who feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. It really does. Because um, I think it sort of reflects Capra in a lot of ways because I know there's, because um, apparently he was really difficult to work with as well. Like a lot of the big 30s, 40s directors, it appears like they were just little dictators but Kepra's angry and you can feel that anger every single time you watch it and the same with Stuart 
Like Stuart has also has that same folksy reputation. And then you watch a James Stewart performance and you're like, hang on a minute. This isn't the oh shucks thing people keep talking about. It's this very, it's this guy who's obviously working through stuff. I mean, I think you uh, shared a photo and goes, yeah, this is a guy who went on to make Vertigo. I'm like, yeah, it's a guy who went on to make Vertigo. Hitchcock saw that anger and decided to really push him into vertigo which is an incredibly dark and disturbing and what are you doing james stewart movie but it's always there even in his most kind of nicest roles like say the philadelphia story um uh who shot liberty valance and oh the one he made with marlena dietrich that's amazing um i can't remember the title but it's an amazing movie he's him and marlena are sexiest people on earth and it's got this quiet i'm a killer thing about him when he's trying to say i don't like violence um so yeah, I was sort of, because I've only, because I kind of stayed away from James Stewart because I thought that reputation of him being folksy. And then you watch a performance and I'm like, no, this guy's working through stuff. This is, he's a really amazing actor who can layer these anger, this pain and this kind of distrust and everything like that where you, he seems normal, but there's something going on under the surface. And um, this movie, it kind of comes out a bit more, especially the scene at the bar and when he's holding his son crying, it's like, oh my God, Stewart. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, <clears throat> he's one of my all-time favorite actors. Uh, for a long time, he actually was my favorite mm-hmm. actor. Um, he, it, it, you know, I know they they looked at a lot of other they they, they looked at some other actors for this movie, and and Capra was actually like, no, I need Stewart. But they looked at Henry Fonda. They looked at some other people, and I just cannot imagine this movie with anybody else because this is such a master class performance because the other thing that people i don't think necessarily give enough credit to this movie's funny as shit hilarious (laughs) oh my god he's hilarious in this movie for him to just go you know to have him start when he's he's doing things like talking about how big he wants his his steamer trunk to be and and all of a life raft (laughs) and and then to cut to where he's on the bridge and we get that that absolute hitchcockian shot of Mm. him you know hair all messed up and all that stuff and then to the joyful george at the end like man he takes us on a fucking ride in this does yeah no, yeah, I can't imagine anyone else but him. I mean, Fonda's too contained. Like J- James Stewart can just, uh, yeah, I think people are underestimating because they kind of hear his voice and the impressions that have been done with him. I'm like, no, you watch a Stewart movie. He's he's always working. You can tell he's working with his whole body. It, it, yeah, he's he's come, he's been quickly becoming one of my favorite actors as well. Um, because every time I watch him, I'm like, oh, you are amazing. And such a knack for dialogue, just so good at at handling dialogue and putting his own little like spin on it and making things that shouldn't be that funny, funny, but also making things that shouldn't be that heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Mm. Like when he comes, you know, when he comes back and he's on the bridge and he's like, I want to live again, please, God, let me live again. Like that, that line 10,000 actors could fuck up that line. Oh, yes. I like, I literally just got choked up just saying it again. You know, like it, it, 
yeah, oh my God, it's just, it's a masterclass. Mm. I mean, this is, you know, and, and I don't know why I feel the need to defend it because everybody watches it every year. So obviously lots of people think it's a masterpiece, but I just really want people to truly appreciate how big of a fucking masterpiece it is. It is not just this heartwarming Christmas movie. It is one of the, in my opinion, 10 greatest movies ever made. I, I just, I think it's perfect in every way. It really is. Cause there's a scene just after uh, Clarence who we haven't even touched on yet. Who's, who's amazing. Um, after he saves him from the river, gets him out. And then George Bailey sort of says the famous words, I wish I'd never been born. And then he goes, well, right. If you ask for it. And I can't, I can't see exactly when the transition is, but something, I think he goes to the window and then you see the wind stop or something. Um, and all of a sudden you go back to James Stewart and he's clean shaven. He hasn't got the cut on his face. His hair's a little bit more polished back. Um, and it's kind of this really clean transition of um, if, to be honest, if Clarence hadn't, if they hadn't keep pointing it out that you don't have a cut on your face, that you the stubble's gone, um, well, yeah, because you haven't been born. You're 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 nobody. You're nothing. You're this this kind of in, in element essentially. I don't think I would have noticed the transition, or I don't think I noticed it in the past. But it's so well done um, and clean and kind of fluid that I can kind of understand why they had to go back and kind of really hammer the point home of no, look what we've done. We've done it so seamlessly that you wouldn't have noticed noticed it. So we have to kind of point out that. Um, he has no stubble and that he has no cut and all that kind of thing. And it's, yeah, it's just brilliant filmmaking on top of everything else that's going on. And it's just these little tiny details, again, going back to the cinematographer and the um, editor, William Hornbeck. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible. Well, and it's such a setup and payoff too, because, yeah. because in addition to how well Stuart delivers, please God, let me live again the snow starts back up yes <laughs> this time i fucking when the snow starts i fucking lost it like <laughs> I, tears streaming down my face because they set it up so well that it stopped snowing before yes when the snow comes back you're like oh he's back he's back it, it you know and it, oh my god yeah it just is so there is not a misstep in this entire movie. Everything works perfectly. And again, I just, I, I hope, you know, and, and I'm sure most of the people listening are going to be like, well, yeah, it's a wonderful life. It's great. But I'm like, please appreciate how great, <laughs> because like you said, we haven't even gotten to Clarence. We haven't, and, and we're already an hour and a half in. So we probably need to start winding down actually. Yes, but I just, yeah, but I do want to point out Clarence who is Henry Travers or is that, or is he the uncle? Oh, um, Henry Travers is, is Clarence. Yeah, he is so good in this. And he's like one of the first voices you hear. So it's kind of, so he, you hear his voice and he's saying, oh, I'd love to get my wings. I mean, that's the whole point of the story is that this angel is going to get his wings, but yet you're following the story of George Bailey. And when he comes up again, he's so good and he's so calm. And I'd love it when I think Bert and Ernie are trying to capture them both in the house and like, he just disappears. And he's just like, oh, he's having a good time with it, actually. He's kind of, even he keeps saying, oh God, this is so difficult. He's actually having the time of his life running around terrifying George Bailey. 
and 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 I love that they set him up too, you know, with with basically Joseph and and God or the senior angel. You know that Clarence is kind of an idiot too. Yes. And, I love that it all comes together because Clarence helps George, but George helps Clarence because yes. he helps Clarence get his wings. And it, it, and I mean, Jesus, we haven't even gotten to Bert and Ernie or. Uh, you know, I was only on this watch. I clicked Bert and Ernie. Like I was like, Oh shit. Bert and Ernie. Absolutely. And, and Jim Hansen has been very upfront. I mean that they are, the inspiration for Bert and Ernie. This isn't a coincidence. Yeah, uh, I, I figured that because I never clicked. And then someone goes, Bert, he's yelling, Bert, Ernie, you know me. I'm like, wait, Bert. Oh, and then I looked it up and he goes, yeah, they were the inspiration for Bert and Ernie. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, I um, I mean, I just, I don't, I, Linz, I don't even know. I, I could go on for like eight hours about this movie. <laughs> Me too. The final point I want to make is going back to the filmmaking and you're saying I appreciate it because everyone appreciates a little movie called Back to the Future as being the tightest script ever. You do realize that back because I almost chose it as a trailer. This is Back to the Future is the blueprint from It's a Wonderful Life. Every single setup, every single moment is kind of tracked. Um, everything has a payoff in this movie. I mean, it's not as kind of as obviously gleeful as in um, Back to the Future, but it is that the house has paid off every single moment with the bells, Clarence, um, the, the fact that Potter is the boof of the story because he's just the goddamn Lionel Barrymore. I instinctively always hate. So every single time I see him earlier, like in film, like in the thirties, I'm like, I don't trust you. Even though he's mid, if he's playing a trustworthy guy, I really don't trust him. Cause like you're Potter. You're, mm, mm, yeah. Don't like you. Um, really yeah. And you in cappers, you can't take it with you. Yes. He's a <laughs> guy in that movie and it's like no you're fucking potter you're a piece of shit you're a piece of shit i mean everything about him i'm just like can you just stop trying to make to ruin um george bailey's life for one second i mean you're really obsessed with this guy because you can't get the small piece of money that you think that you want um you're still the richest guy in town it's not that big of a deal but no he has to destroy that um savings and loan um yeah there's so much but yeah it's kind of I love it because everything is perfectly set up. So when you do get to those final moments, because everyone thinks that last third act is the is the whole entire movie. It's not, but you have to go through all this stuff. So when you get to it, it's like everything is paying off. And when it gets back to the house, it pays off again. It's such a tight script. It's such a tight movie. Everything about it is perfect. Yeah, I mean, it goes, that's actually the perfect way to, to kind of wrap us up because it goes back to what we talked about at the very start every single thing in this movie is earned yes there is not a false note there is not a false step every single thing in this movie is earned all of it all the characters you know martini coming in and and being like i even emptied out the jukebox you know yes why are you calling me nick (laughs) who are you it's all set up uh you know harry coming back and, and and literally like flying home in a blizzard because george needs help like it's all set up meticulously it is i i'm with you Linz. i know everybody says back to the future's perfect script i think there's a couple other movies but this is a perfect script and capra turned it into a perfect movie there is just nothing about this movie that does not it 100 perfectly 
No, it does not. Right. And with that, we're going to get into, well, maybe not the main event, but definitely, um, well, it's in Mike's DNA. So this is going to get great. Um, the second feature, of course, is Spider-Man 2. Curtains are reopening. Mike, what would your second trailer be for this amazing, incredible piece of cinema? So my second trailer is a very specific trailer because mm. I, I know you cut these in, you cut the trailers in. So yes. it is the third trailer for this movie. So when you search it on YouTube, you need to look for trailer three. Trailer three, got it. And it is the third trailer for Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. You are my son. And I have to believe that you were sent here for a reason. And even if it takes the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. How do you find someone who has spent a lifetime covering his tracks? For some, he was a guardian angel. For others, a ghost who never quite fit in. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Interesting. So uh, here, yeah. Here's the thing. I have some issues. I, I love Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's it's also going to be one of my favorite movies of the year. Mm. I have some real issues with Man of Steel. Yeah. I would say that trailer is maybe the best superhero movie that's ever been made. Is that the one where it starts off when he's like holding his fist down on the ice because you can see he's going to fly for the first time or? It's the end of it. So it starts in Krypton, but you've got the whole Hans Zimmer, the great Hans Zimmer, Ike, I got issues with Zimmer, but his score for Man of Steel is is wonderful. That's running through it. It starts with him. It starts on Krypton, and then you get him interacting with Kevin Costner, and mm. then it builds and builds, and then the trailer ends with him coming out in the full Superman costume, putting his fist down, and flying for the first time as the the score hits a crescendo. It is. It is an absolute masterwork. It is an absolute piece of art as a trailer. It is one of my favorite trailers of all time, just period. Uh, regardless of what I may think of the actual movie, the trailer is perfection and is a nice play into Spider-Man 2. No, I think it is because like you were sort of saying, I before with your trailers for Wonderful Life, I was having difficulty for this because I usually have about 50 of them. Um, and we're on the same wavelength because I was also going to go for another Superman trailer, just not the um, Snack Snyder. But I think, yeah, that trailer is absolutely perfect. Um, and I think the tone of what you're we're about to get into that trailer is absolutely perfect because um, I've been hunting because I love the score for Superman, uh, Hans Zimmer, I'm the same. I have big issues, but when he's on something, he's he's amazing. Um, I've been searching for that trailer score. I think it's mixed in with something else, but I just want that moment of music <laughs> from that tra from the trailer. Um, that's all I want. I don't want the rest of the score. I just want that particular moment. It's a gorgeous, you're right. It is an absolutely gorgeous Um a piece of music and um I, I love it so much it's just the it's so beautifully dramatic 
So if you if you want to find it, um, it is on the score. Uh, so if you you know go on Spotify or yeah. Apple, the actual track is called. Um, give me give me one minute here. This yeah. is good, good podcasting that I'm. Uh, <laughs> I did some new curveball. I'm like, what's this unrelated track to this movie we're going to be talking about? <laughs> actual track is called Flight. Mm. So that if you that is it that is the the track that backs the trailer. It's yeah. it, it's got, it starts with the piano and builds to the full orchestra and everything. So flight is the track you want. That is that that soundtracks or that trailer. So awesome! Thank you so so much. No, that is an absolute perfect trailer because like you, I haven't actually seen Man of Steel since it came out um, because it wasn't the trailer. Uh, the movie I think that no I think I need to would give that movie again because I have come back on Spider uh not Spider-Man uh Batman v Superman um so I need to go back and watch Man of Steel just because um I think my memory of it back in what 2013 um maybe different now but it's from memory definitely not a perfect perfect movie no, and it's still not. I rewatched it and I like it more now than I ever have. I rewatched it in the lead up to Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I think it's of the three Snyder movies. I still think it's the worst one of the three, but it is better than I remembered it. But the biggest problem is you're right. It's not that fucking trailer. That mm. trailer is mm, chef's kiss. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. If that was the movie of that kind of tone, I would have been all over it um okay so for my first trailer I uh, okay as I said I was having difficulty because I think Spider-Man 2 is such a specific tone that I think is very hard to capture even though I think Marvel has been trying to capture it since 2008 and has been as much as I love Marvel has been failing at it so my first trailer I'm actually gonna go for a just a pure melodrama but by the guy who actually wrote the dialogue for this movie it's Ordinary People from 1980. <laughs> But starting all over again, the lying, the covering up, the disappearing for hours, I will not stand for it. I can't stand it. I really can't. Kind of psychiatrists are you. They all believe in dreams. I do believe in dreams. Only sometimes I want to know what's happening when you're awake. I don't want to see any doctors or counselors. This is my family. But if we have problems, then we will solve those problems in the privacy of our own home. I knew something was wrong even before he tried to kill himself. I think it is a very private matter. You never came to the hospital. Now, How do you Conrad, know about the your hospital? Your mother did come to the hospital, Conrad, and you know that. I just don't know how to deal with it anymore. Why are you hassling me? Huh? Why are you trying to make me mad? Why are you mad? No! He provokes people. I would never have let him put electricity in my head. You blame me for the whole thing. Can't you see anything except in terms of how it affects you? I miss it sometimes. Fuck yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Talk about a movie that was maligned for years because it dared to win the Oscar when on the same year of Raging Bull and Elephant Man, which to be fair, Elephant Man and, and Raging Bull, pure masterpieces. But Ordinary People is kind of amazing. Um, it is just like Spider-Man 2. It is just about emotional fallout. That's what it is. This movie is about something really big and bad has happened and it is just about the emotional fallout from there. I think everyone in this movie gives amazing performances um it's timothy hutton isn't it who's in it yeah um well, yeah oh, yeah a monster but uh brilliant actor brilliant uh, act, yeah how dare he get try to get romero fired off duck up um but it's yeah it's just that kind of movie that's going to set this emotional tone really really well yeah and so i first came around to ordinary people because i 
Goodwill Hunting came out at the perfect point in my life. It came out in 1997, I think. Yes. Mm. You're in college. It, you know, like I was like literally the target audience for Goodwill Hunting. And I saw it with my parents and my dad who I've said before, you know, was a very big influence on my movie watching was like, you really should watch ordinary people if you like Goodwill Hunting. Mm. And he was not lying because it's basically the same goddamn movie. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and it's so, but the difference is Goodwill Hunting really ends on a, an uplifting and optimistic note. And I, I won't get into spoilers other than to say, ordinary people goes a little harder <laughs> in the ending um but uh it's it's a brilliant movie i have always had problems with people shitting on it because of like you said the nerve of it to win over uh raging bull and elephant man because yes it's a more conventional drama than those two movies but conventional doesn't mean bad and um Rumor has it this guy Robert Redford might actually know how to direct a fucking movie. And Surprisingly, yeah. I mean, he's done it a couple of times, and they're some of my favorite movies, so it's interesting. <laughs> and, and this guy Alvin Sargent might know how to write a fucking movie, and uh, and Judd Hirsch might know how to act, and Donald Sutherland and Carol Burnett might be pretty good at it too. Like, people need to stop shitting on ordinary people and just watch the fucking movie because it's amazing, and yeah. I love that you picked it. No, I was completely in that boat. I was like, oh, God, that movie that won the 1980 um, Academy Award. And then I, of course, listened to Pure Cinema. Um, I think it was Pure Cinema with Brian Sauer. And he was saying, no, you should actually give this movie a watch. It's really good. So I did. And I went, huh, this movie's really good. And yeah, it does end a little bit harder than, say, something like Good Will Hunting because it was still made in the late 70s. And it was it's a still a 70s movie. Um, and Good Will Hunting was made in the 90s and is a 90s movie. Um, but no, I think it is really great because you're just watching people attack dialogue and attack the emotions attached to it. And you can just tell that they're having a really good time doing it. And I kind of love watching stuff like that when actors are just like, yeah, I've got a good part. It's a good script. I'm it's going to be great. And the director kind of knows what he's doing. Robert Redford knows what he's doing. Um, just watch quiz show if you don't believe me. Um, and yeah, it's just a really solid, great movie. And yes, it's more kind of appealing to win an Oscar because it's the Oscars. They're not always going to give, I mean, they didn't give Scorsese, they gave a Scorsese a I'm sorry, Oscar. We should have given you it probably about five times before but you're getting for The Departed, which by the way, awesome movie. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, but it's still a really great movie. And so 1980 was a really great year for movies. If you actually look at what was being released and what was being nominated, you can go, hell, 1980 was a hell of a year. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And shout out to our uh, our good friend, Anthony King of the Cult Movies podcast. He, um, we're past it now, but uh, he does a thing called Sad Vember and uh, where he watches like sad family dramas in November and ordinary people might be like the platonic ideal of a Sad Vember movie. And and I know he loves it. So, um, you know, shout out to him. But yeah, people fucking watch ordinary people like do stop. Stop listening to the prevailing thing that it didn't deserve the Oscar that's a subjective thing. What I will say is it is a movie for the type of movie it is trying to be. It is in the same class as Raging Bull. Yes. Uh, they're, they're trying very different things. They want to do very different things, but it is as good as Raging Bull uh, in my hot take opinion. 
Oh, I, I would absolutely agree with that because I would probably watch Ordinary People more than Raging Bull because Raging Bull just gets me to a core where I feel very, very uncomfortable, which is the point. I, I get that. It's not like I'm criticizing Raging Bull for that. But yeah, no, these are about the dysfunctional families and both movies would work brilliantly for Sad Vember, actually, Raging Bull and Ordinary People. So yes, I, uh, um, yeah, please, please watch it. Don't think it because the actor won the uh, one Best Picture Award for directing a movie. It's not that. It is um, a really, really great movie. Um, Mike, what is your second trailer for Spider-Man 2? So I'm, I'm actually calling an audible here. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my second trailer was going to be um, Darkman because I wanted to get people in the, uh, in the Raimi vein. Yeah. But I actually want to, I want to follow the action for everyone sort of ethos of trying to turn people on to things they would have never seen. Mm. So I'm actually going to go with, uh, and I think this fits because it's very Capper-esque and it's very Spider-Man 2-esque. I'm going to go with the trailer for a movie that just came out in 2020 from your neck of the woods, actually. Mm. It is quaint Aussie Kiwi production uh, directed by Keel McNaughton. It's called The Legend of Baron Toa. Uh, Linz, have you ever even seen this movie? You near around here, bro? Uh, no. I don't see you for all this time. When my dad died, this place went to crap. That's not the nephew I tell you about. He's been in Australia too long. Your father's belt is gone. Alice has stolen my stuff. Yeah, it's a bit tato-tato around here. What's yours is mine and what's mine is yours, but it's all good. That works best for those with nothing worth borrowing, doesn't it? Hey, can we discuss the belt? Suits me, eh? When I heard you were the Baron's only spawn, I don't know whether to piss or crap my pants. You know what I've concluded, my bro? change my undies <laughs> no but i did hear you talk about it on action for everyone and it is on the streaming queued up i want to watch it with my uh partner who's yeah. also a kiwi and i think he would get a massive hoot out of it um so yeah. i am waiting for us to actually have a night together when we can actually sit down and watch it but it, i am dying to see this movie this is perfect yeah, you guys will love it. And and for those wondering why I'm picking it, the you know the plot is basically a uh, the son of a very famous uh, wrestler who went by the name Baron Toa. Uh, that was his dad. He was a very famous professional wrestler, but he also kept the neighborhood clean. Then he died. The son left, became a business student. Uh, all of this sort of stuff. And he comes back home to convince his uncle to sell their house so that he can get investment capital to start this app that he wants to start. And what he finds out is the neighborhood has gone to shit. Gangsters have rolled in, taken over the neighborhood. And he has to learn that, uh, unfortunately, sometimes the world needs a hero. And to be that, we have to give up on what we want, even our dreams. But uh, we have to make the world a better place. It's Capra as fuck, to be honest with you. And it's also coupled with that just lovely Kiwi deadpan sense of humor that's just so terrific. Uh, And the fight scenes are legit. So excellent. Yeah. Get kind of the best of all possible worlds. It's funny, it's heartwarming, and and I think it would really 
as a trailer really play terrifically right before Spider-Man 2. I yeah this sounds like a book because I did watch the trailer for this after I heard you talking about it and I was like going yes because New Zealand film industry isn't exactly known for its action industry in fact um I, I know we had a big sort of subculture wrestling culture but I never but in terms of action it's usually well it's either Peter Jackson making Dead Alive or it's Lord of the Rings that I know of there's a New Zealand movie I'm missing but I don't think so but I love the trailer made me homesick um just because i haven't been able to get back to new zealand for a couple of years because of the friggin' pandemic um so watching this kind of very new zealand kind of thing i'm just like oh yes i know this i want i want to yes i'm dying to watch this so this is why i want to show it to my partner because i think he's going to get an absolute hoot out of it because we do as soon as we find a really good new zealand movie we have to watch it together and then just giggle and get nostalgic and go oh my god friggin' new zealand what are you doing um kind of thing so yeah this is absolutely perfect yeah, it's it's I I would be I never like to make, you know, predictions, but I would be very stunned if you guys don't love it. Uh please when you do get around to watching it, please uh you know, DM me and let me know what you thought cuz I uh I I really think you guys will love it. Um yes, no, I will absolutely um absolutely do that. Actually, no, wait, I'm going to go with my original one because when you said you might have chosen Dark Man, I got worried cuz that was going to be my second trailer, which yes, it is. I'm going for Dark Man. Who? No foolish heroics, if you please. Is. Dark Man. They destroyed everything he had. All that he loved. Everything that he was. Now. Crime has a new enemy. And justice has a brand new face. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. The good news is that I know who's behind our little troubles of late. Finish it. It's also, it's a terrific trailer. I mean, I, like yeah. I said, mm. I literally called this on the spot because I watched it and, you know, the, the, you get, it's that old school, like, 90s trailer where you get the narrator and it's mm. who is Dark Man, you know, and, and, and Dark Man's just, like, I remember when Raimi was hired to do Spider, the first Spider-Man. People were mm. like, that guy? And I'm like, did you motherfuckers not watch Dark Man? Well, I know what its box office was, so I know you motherfuckers didn't watch Dark Man. But if you had watched Dark Man, you would know this guy knows superheroes. Like, yes. Sam Raimi, and, and even The Quick and the Dead, which is a Western but also kind of a superhero Western, like the way he hooked Sharon Stone and Russell Crowe up in that movie with like hero shots and, and, and stuff like that. Like I, I was already a Raimi fan, but I was also just like, no, you don't get it. He's going to kill this. Like he is absolutely going to nail this. And dark man was a big part of the reason I thought that. No, I did not see Dark Man until way, way later. Um, and it kind of blew me away because not only does Sam Raimi know superheroes, he gets classic superheroes. He gets that 1930s sense of 30s, 40s sensibility really well. I mean, it's telling the move one movie he wrote with his the Cohen brothers. Well, he probably collaborated more, but was um oh my god, is it a show about a camera man? Tim Robbins. Um the the Hucks. Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker Proxy. Thank you. Completely blanking. Um, 
that has so much raminess in it, um, just in terms of the script level and everything. And I know he was like the second unit, um, has so much rainy energy in it because he gets this kind of madcap 30s, the 50s monster kind of thing really, really well. He know he understands it innately. I mean, you just watch any of his Evil Dead movies like we just did. You can see it in there. And um, Darkman is this kind of crystallization of everything he kind of loves about that genre, the monsters, the superheroes, the kind of trying to do the right thing, the, um, the kind of the sentimentality, which is baked in there, or with an amazing Liam Neeson and Francis McDermott performance. And I, I kind of love it. And it's a great trailer. Because the reason why I think we went for both these kind of things is because Spider, uh, Spider-Man 2 is such a specific flavor that you can't help but think of Superman. You cannot help but think of um, the Toa movie. You can't help but think of Darkman um, and maybe Ordinary People because of the melodrama because those are the things that are specifically baked into it. So, and yeah, if you haven't seen Darkman, please do because it is fun. And I even kind of, and I even really adore the the sequels um, with uh, Vincent Vislu. Um, it's, it's the, yeah, Vislu, yeah. yeah. They're just, I, lo- I love it all. I love it all. I love it. <laughs> so the thing is, so, there's a line at the end of the first Spider-Man mm. where Peter has this monologue as he's walking away from Mary Jane. And he says, you know, I've learned that with great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. It is my curse. Mm. And I think if you needed one line to sum up Sam Raimi's entire sort of ethic in his movies, it is my gift my curse because almost all of his protagonists are that right ash is gifted with being able to kill deadites his curse is that the only thing he can do is kill deadites uh peyton westlake in dark man is gifted with these amazing powers he can't feel pain he's brilliant he can make all these masks his curse is He's a scarred monster with rage issues and therefore cannot allow himself to be around anyone, to love anyone, to be loved by anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eh, Sharon Stone's character in The Quick and the Dead, her gift is she's the best shot in the world. Her curse is she got that because her dad was murdered. You know, yes. everything Sam Raimi does is about gifts and curses. Uh, There is no power that comes without a cost, without Mm. a sacrifice. And, you know, I I don't want to jump the gun and lead us into the main event, but that is no more exemplified (laughs) than it is in Spider-Man 2. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength, makes us noble even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. Barker! Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at your paper. Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted. I know I'm trying. Where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do. Do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try, I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. 
I'm Spider-Man. No more. It's what it's about. Um, but before we really jump into it, um, I want to know more about you and Spider-Man. Were you always a Spider-Man kid? Um, as in, did you watch the t- the many versions of the animated series, read the comics, or was kind of Spider-Man 2 a, more of a surprise to you? The very first comic I ever bought when I was, well, my mom bought it for me when I was four or five years old. The literal very first comic book I bought was a Spider-Man comic. So you were definitely a Spider-Man kid then. I am a Spider-Man kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I am through and through. Um, my two superheroes are, which would also explain Man of Steel. My superheroes are Superman and Spider-Man. I'm. I'm not a huge Batman. I like, I love Batman. Everybody loves Batman, mm. but I'm not a Batman guy, right? Mm. Um, I'm not an Iron Man guy. Uh, they are, they are my two. So yes, I watched all the cartoons. I dressed as Spider-Man for Halloween. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I will fully admit to having fallen off a little bit because I don't want to super nerd out, but I haven't dug the way Marvel has treated Spider-Man the last 20 years mm. um, on the comic front. But no, I mean, I, that, was, that was my regular comic. Every month I got Spider-Man. I still have in my closet behind me Todd McFarlane's original run of both Amazing Spider-Man and the Spider-Man series that he did. Mm. I am a fucking Spider-Man kid. No question about it. So when it was announced that there was a Spider-Man movie coming out, I know a few people are going, really? Raimi? Evil Dead guy? Um, But I know that first 2002 movie was a big deal. Like I wasn't even um, a big comic person. I was starting to dip into them, but it was more Frank Miller, Alan Moore, DC kind of dark non dark darker stuff but i know that me and a friend went to see final fantasy because we knew that was where the trailer for um the first spider-man trailer was was going to be um back in the day you couldn't just watch youtube you had to go to a friggin' movie you didn't want to see and if i ever do spider-man 2002 final fantasy will be a trailer but i just remember um being so excited at that first trailer and just seeing the pov of his hands like slinging webs and all that kind of thing it was a big deal so for me who wasn't initially a spider-man fan getting really excited you must have been losing your mind (laughs) flipping the fuck out that trailer you know which is the 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 trailer that unfortunately they had to pull because september 11th happened and Mm. you know those who haven't seen it you can find it on youtube but he webs up a helicopter between the the twin towers um to a Juno reactor song, which is just incredible. All of everything about it is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I was flipping the fuck out. And I, I, I distinctly remember right after the Brian Singer X-Men came out, which is a good movie. I like it, but that they were all in black leather trying to look like Neo because they thought the nerdy, you know, X-Men costumes wouldn't work. Entertainment Weekly released a promo shot of Toby in the in the Spider-Man costume mm-hmm. and see it the red and the blue with the webs and just thinking, oh my God, they 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 nailed it. They did it. They did it. Um Spider-Man, the 2002 Spider-Man is the only movie in my life that I have ever seen three times in the theater in a row. Wow. At, I saw it 
I walked out, went to the box office, bought another ticket, <laughs> went back, saw it again, walked out, went to the box office, bought another ticket, went back and saw it again. I actually saw, I saw Spider-Man 2 three times in the same day. Yeah. But it wasn't in a row. It was uh, spread out. But no, Spider-Man's the only movie that I've ever seen three times. I spent like eight hours in a theater just watching fucking Spider-Man. And it was a goddamn religious experience for me, Linz. It was No, I can kind of see that. Um, because I, for just personal preference, I just love the first one more just because I love the action. I love the color. I love the way it's shot. Um, as we'll get into who actually Raimi was working with with these movies, who I think is like the dream team of just if you're going to make a movie. Um, and it's it was just amazing and just re-watching it like a couple of weeks ago I was on such a high because there's a moment in the first one where it's the Macy's um Thanksgiving parade and he's just bouncing on friggin like these like massive um balloons kind of thing and he's trying to catch the green goblin and that whole scene with Mary Jane hanging off a building is so friggin just joyful and it, you can just tell he's like having fun he's like I'm getting to make Spider-Man like sling through the city. I'm doing all this amazing stuff and I'm loving it. Um, And then you get into two, which is like everything that happened in the first one, there's going to be emotional fallout, which took me a little bit. We'll get into the arsehole I was when I was 25. But um, yeah, it was just, yeah, I will always love that. And I think going to see that, it was something, it was kind of like the, well, Bill Pope cinematographer was a cinematographer on this and in the matrix. And you can tell because you're still seeing something that you did not ever think you would see on screen before. Like the matrix was took you completely by surprise. Cause you didn't think this was possible. Um, but with Spider-Man, you, I could not have imagined a time when I would actually see Spider-Man swinging through New York with a web and on the buildings. I didn't think that was an actual thing you could see on screen live action. Well, especially since we'd had a couple of live action Spider-Mans, you know, we mm. had the, the two seventies TV series. We had the Japanese one, which. Oh is, yes. I forgot about that one. <laughs> it, it's very much a, a, a tokusatsu, you know, super Sentai common writer kind of show. And then we had the American one with Nicholas mm. Hammond, where it was super low budget and just, you know, not that great. And they couldn't really convincingly do spider-man like his webs look like ropes and Mm. you know and for me as a kid watching those in the 80s like i still loved them Mm. because i would take any spider-man i could get um but to see it you know especially the end of the first one which i know they blew that was like 25 percent of their budget or something like that don't quote me on that number but that whole last sequence at the end of the first one where he's swinging through the city and ends up on the the flagpole that was a massive amount of their budget Mm. uh it was you're you're right it's like the matrix it's one of those movies where you watch it and you go this is moving cinema forward Mm. like things are going to be different after this movie. Um, the first Iron Man has that. You know, unfortunately, Marvel has settled into a routine. And, and I love that you brought up that Macy's Day Parade um, scene because, you know, one of the things we complain about with Marvel movies now is how flat and bland they look and mm. how vibrant and gorgeous and, and like a comic book the Raimi Spider-Man movies look. Yes. They, they're, they're bright colors, 
almost all the fight scenes take place in broad daylight. They're not washed out in night so that they can skimp on the CGI. Like they're so gorgeous that, that even if you don't like them, man, just watch them and just bask in the visual feast that is those movies. Oh, they're go- absolutely gorgeous to look at. I mean, they're so colorful and they've got life and texture in them. Um, yeah, because my biggest kind of thing at the moment with Marvel is you're right, they have settled into a routine and even movies where I think that I still haven't seen Eternals yet, but I liked Shang-Chi. I just didn't love it because I think the ending did that very typical CGI mess where I didn't really know what was happening in it. Um, and I kind of wish they'd kind of pull back from that a little bit, but I don't think they're going to. Um, and that's because that's kind of what people expect from a Marvel movie. If they didn't, I wonder what, I don't know. I don't know what would happen, actually. Yeah, imagine a world where the MCU is influenced by Blade and Spider-Man rather than the Avengers. Yes. Um, I love the Avengers. Like, the Avengers, the 2012 Avengers is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it. I'm not shitting on it. But there is admittedly a those from blade in 98 to iron man in 2008 the marvel movies were vastly more idiosyncratic and interesting Mm. and directors you know on lee's hulk could you imagine that fucking movie being made today like whether you like that movie or not could you imagine that fucking movie getting made today no that's no i can't i still can't i still can't believe it was made when it was made actually i i and i love ang lee's the hulk i think the fact that he's more concerned about the sky and um the father-son relationships than anything else um is is a miracle that um i think it was universal went yeah we'll give you all this money to make this weird hulk movie and angles lee just rubbed his hands and went excellent <laughs> um no i can't so i, I can't believe it was made when it was actually made it, it, let alone today yeah i mean we're we're literally right now as we're talking they're doing reshoots on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and mm. reshoots are built into these movies. So people shouldn't freak out, but the rumors are they're doing reshoots to try and make it less Raimi-esque. And yet Spider-Man 2 is Raimi as fuck. Like, and so- made all the money, by the way. This isn't like Spider-Man 2 was like, it's a wonderful life and didn't hit with audiences. This hit, this was like the biggest movie of all time for a second. Yeah, it had the biggest one-day opening of all yeah, time. Yeah, that's it, yeah. It fell a little short as the biggest movie of the year that year because mm. Shrek people... Oh, went. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like, yeah, fucking... This is Raimi as hell. And Sony was like, sure, great. We hired this idiosyncratic director he made a more stripped down movie in the first one, which is still Raimi as fuck. Oh yeah. He made us all the money. You know, the first Spider-Man broke every box office record at the time, like Mm. literally every box office record at the time. Um, And they were like, so we're going to let him make his movie. And he makes like, there's a fucking the the hospital scene where Doc Ock's arms come to life. Oh, so good! <laughs> it's an evil. He snuck an Evil Dead movie into a two hundred million dollar Hollywood blockbuster. 
He really did. He snuck a melodrama. He snuck a 50s monster movie and he snuck Evil Dead, which is just mind blowing. This is the thing that annoys me. Kevin Feige was a producer on Spider-Man 2. So he's worked with um, Raimi before. He knows what he's capable of. He knows that he's a competent. He knows he has his crew. Bill Pope isn't the working on um, Multiverse of Madness, but Danny Elfman is doing the score and Bob Morowski, goddamn Bob, freaking Bob Morowski is still editing it. So he has his kind of crew that he does for these movies. And the fact that it, the rumors crew that they're going back to make it less Raimi is so gut-wrenching because I'm like, no, he can do this. You've freaking seen it. I mean, Spider-Man was one of the biggest, hugest movies. Spider-Man 2 was absolutely huge. Sony did not lose money on this. Feige, you worked on these movies. You know the process. You know this is going to work. But every single time, especially after Endgame, I feel like every single time Marvel is going to do something different, they pull back. Again, I haven't seen Eternals, so I can't comment on that one, but everything else I've seen, there's a, oh, oh, we're almost going to do something. Oh, no, we're not. And it's kind of this frustrating thing of like, end game's over. You can do anything you want now. So do anything you want. You have the audience. I mean, you did it with Guardians. Why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny. And I don't want to turn this into like an MCU bitch fest. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> No, no, you're fine. But it's so funny because if you go back and watch those phase one movies, mm. Iron Man, Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, and then the Avengers, all of those movies are completely distinct. Yes. They feel like fundamentally different movies. And somehow now that they're the king of the mountain, they are so much less... Uh, interested in being creative interested in being interesting i guess yes. is the best way to describe it uh because like i'm sorry kenneth braun is thor and joe johnston's captain america look nothing alike nope. they are absolutely completely distinct movies um black widow and shang chi mm, they kind of look like they're made by the same person. They kind of do, which is kind of was disappointing about it because you had an opportunity to do something really interesting with Black Widow and Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi could have been really interesting. It could have been this amazing, uh, what's the wire work? I'm blanking again. Um, the wire action movies? was was yeah. yeah. They could have made a really interesting Wu-Sung movie or they could have made a really interesting Bruce Lee martial arts style movie with fantasy elements. And they kind of tried to, but then they went, oh, no, wait, this is a Marvel movie. So we have to do, we have to make it look a certain way. And I'm like, you goddamn Tony Leung and friggin' Michelle Yeoh in this movie. I mean, by the way, Tony's amazing. Like the fact that he still has, still looks like he's like 35 is incredible. Um, but it's kind of just like, ah, oh, come on, guys. You had, you had the material, same with Black Widow. You had the material, go do something with it. Um, so... Yeah, even if it doesn't completely work, you still don't have to make it $500 million. You can kind of scale it back and do something interesting and still get people going to see it. You're the king of the mountain. You own everything. That is my piece on Marvel and what they're doing at the moment. I just, look, I'm more surprised. I'm The first thing I've been really enjoying is freaking Hawkeye. So, and that, I'm still waiting for that to disappoint me. So it's, yeah, Marvel be better. <laughs> It's a perfect segue kind of into talking about Spider-Man because, um, you know, obviously we, at the time we're recording here in the U.S., at least we're a week out from Spider-Man No Way Home. Yes. From, mm. And 
I'm not convinced John Watts isn't an algorithm. Like I've seen <laughs> Cop Car. That's a great movie. I like Cop Car. I'm not convinced that the guy that directed Cop Car is the guy that's directed the MCU Spider-Man movies. Because if you watch those and compare them to the Raimi movies, there is no identity to them. They are movie by algorithm. And what I love about these Raimi movies is they are so fucking Sam Raimi. Like you can just fill him even in Spider-Man three, which is a mess of a movie, but you can still fill like ain't nobody else, but Sam Raimi making Ebo emo Peter Parker do a terrible dance scene in the middle of a movie like that that that's all sam raimi nobody else is doing that john watts ain't fucking doing that mark webb that made the amazing spider-man movies ain't fucking doing that only sam raimi's like yeah i'm gonna make toby look super emo and be a dick and have him dance in the most terrible way possible um and i just i miss that i miss when there were blockbusters that felt like you know uh our good friend Matt Bledsoe just put out my my episode that I did of Unscottable with Crimson Tide. Yes, he did. It was great. And I had very similar thoughts about that. You know, I miss Sam Raimi. I miss Tony Scott. I mm. miss guys that were making these blockbusters and getting these budgets, these ridiculous budgets to make these movies. You know, God love Michael Bay for all his flaws. At least a Michael Bay movie is still going to look like a fucking Michael Bay movie. Or it's going to look different, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Um, I mean, Spider-Man 2 has so much personality. And going back to sort of Spider-Man 3 with, you know, Peter Parker doing the ridiculous dance, you can kind of see the prelude to that in 2 when it's kind of the, um, he's lost his powers, he's kind yeah. of going back to normal person, and they start playing raindrops are falling on my head and he's walking down the street like he's a normal person first thing he does is fall over <laughs> yeah it's 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 lovely i i remember seeing this so i saw spider-man 2 at midnight because of course you did <laughs> you they they did 12 well they didn't do this bullshit early seven o'clock showing you know you yeah. had to get your ass up yes and, and go to a 1201 show and um i remember my theater just not even knowing how to comprehend that raindrops keep falling on my head scene and i'm giggling like a fucking madman watching it because yeah like this is that's some ash shit right like sam raimi loves nothing more than to build up a hero cut him down but then build them back up again, bigger and stronger. Yes. Like Army of Darkness is like the entire point of Army of Darkness existing is he's built Ash up in Evil Dead 2. Now he's going to spend the first three quarters of that movie cutting him down and making him look like an idiot. <laughs> and then we get to the third act and he's going to build him back up. And now he's giving heroic speeches and turning the Delta 88 into like, a Mad Max death mobile. Yes. Errol Flynn sword fighting people because Ash knows how to sword fight all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> and he does the same thing here with Peter where he's built him up in Spider-Man one. We start the movie with him being at the height, but he's still Peter. He still can't not get in his way. And so he's going to take away his powers. And then he's just immediately going to take the piss out of him by making him fall over and look like the idiot that he is because the thing that makes 
Peter valuable, the thing that makes Peter worth it, much like George Bailey, is what he does for the world. Yes. Selfish Peter Parker is a fucking buffoon and an idiot. <laughs> yes, he is. And then he's going to build him back up again, and we're going to get an even stronger, better, tougher Peter Parker, stronger, better, tougher Spider-Man. Just like we're going to get a stronger, better, tougher George Bailey. You know, George Bailey is not going to lose to Potter no matter fucking what. And Peter's not going to lose again. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And again, it's sort of jumping all over the place. But when he does get his powers back and you see the blurry glasses, because my partner sort of came home halfway through and I was watching this and he just sort of sat down and he's like, oh, yeah, Spider-Man 1 or 2. And oh, it's 2. And he goes like, oh, why is he doesn't have his powers? And I, remember, he loses it. And he's like, oh, yeah. And we sat down and watched it. And as soon as the blurry glasses, both of us just went, yep. <laughs> it's just even Dan, who hadn't seen, um, hadn't seen the start of it, when he gets his powers back after he has to go and get, after Doc Ock has taken Mary Jane, it's this kind of fuck yes, fuck yes moment. And it's so great because, you know, you see his fish, um, fist clench he's like yeah he's back and it's an amazing feeling and and Raimi shoots like so everything about that scene is perfect because he he you know he before that he tries to jump you know and shoot his web again and he falls and we get the joke my back my back the whole Tobey Maguire back thing yes. <laughs> we've gotten you know again we talked about how everything in it's a wonderful life pays off everything in this movie pays off too because even back before that we get the speech that i cannot hear without fucking choking up of aunt may you know we need heroes they teach us to hold on longer and stuff like that and mm. so we build it up then Raimi undercuts it because we get the joke but then he builds it back up again because Peter punches out of that debris. Yes. You get the blurry glasses and the perfect framing. He drops the glasses, clenches the fist. And then we even get the, the newspaper that says he's back and he swings through it. Like what a fucking cathartic release that entire sequence is for this movie. Like, John, I, I'm not going to try and bitch on him too much, but John Watts ain't fucking doing that. No. That is, that is the work of a master that is completely in control of his craft. And Sam Raimi is 100% in control of his craft in this movie. Yeah, not only Sam Raimi, but Bill Pope, Danny Elfman. This is one of my, okay, okay, Batman's still my favorite Danny Elfman score. But I've been listening to the score of Spider-Man 2 for like the last week, and it is beautiful i mean it's like the most amazing hero score i mean it's like hans zimmer's flight it's just that amazing it's what you want a hero theme to be um and the way this movie is edited bob morowski is just on fire because we're talking about that sequence before and the way it's put together like he pops out of the debris blurry glasses he drops it fist and then a bit just the way it builds and the way this movie is cut together is almost perfect. I don't know how to describe it because I don't know editing, how to, the language of editing, but everything, every single moment fits in with the last one. I mean, when they're in the, when he's in the restaurant with Mary Jane and he's telling her actually 
when he's kind of realized I've got to be Spider-Man again, he's like, actually, no, I can't love you. Um, so I was wrong about that. I'm sorry. He's just playing with her heart at this stage, but it keeps, he's behind, the, he's sitting this back to the glass. You keep seeing the, you keep seeing the road. So you keep waiting for Doc Ock to just appear. And when he does, it's out of nowhere. It's beautiful. Well, and you get those Raimi smash zooms, right? Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> walking and it smashes in on Mary Jane and then it smashes in closer and then it smashes in closer and she screams. I mean, it, and, and again, I love the, the setup and payoff because he's telling her that, but then at the end, you know, like we said, jumping all over the place at the end, when he catches the wall and he's like, hi. And she's like, hi. And he's like, this is really heavy. Uh, <laughs> It's such a gorgeous meet cute for two people who've known each other all their lives that she's suddenly seeing him as Spider-Man. And he's like, hey, this is really heavy. <laughs> she's like, oh, what the hell is happening? <laughs> I, love, I love that he says, MJ, in case we die. And she's like, you do love me. And he's like, and the way McGuire delivers the line where he's just like, I do. You know, it's not, it's not oversold. It's not, it's just, I do. Mm. Uh, but you see me, I'm Spider-Man. This is not what, like, I don't get to have the happy life. I don't get to have, you know, and, and part of that is also Peter earlier kind of being, you know, now you listen to me, I don't want plastics and I don't want it on the ground floor and I don't want to be married to anyone ever. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how you could watch both of these movies and not see that web slinging and, tentacled supervillains notwithstanding they're the same fucking movie <laughs> yes let's go back to that because i think the first act really hammers this capra s comb and that's when i actually messaged you so i went oh my god this is a capra movie and you were like yeah of course it is but when you um okay so this movie opens up he's trying to be uh, peter parker's trying to be spider-man and peter parker which is kind of what i love about spider-man is that peter parker and spider-man are two very different creatures I mean, in that moment when he's trying to hold up the wall, they come together, but it's kind of, and you hear, and you go back to Ben's famous words, which every single movie afterward has been trying to dance around this line because they know they can never do it as well as this movie. With great power comes great responsibility. Um, and this is what Peter's trying to do, but he's failing because he may be succeeding as Spider-Man, which is what New York needs, but he's sucking as Peter Parker. And I love the fact that they kept it, Raimi captures this Capra-esque kind of thing really well of this guy who's trying his best, but it's just not enough. He's again, he's, he's pushing the rock up the, up the hill. And every single time he gets kind of in trouble, like he gets fired or his teacher sort of says, um, you really need to come to class or kind of when he meets Octavius for the first time and he goes, Oh yes, I know you, my the, uh, one armed guy, lizard, lizard man says you're brilliant, but lazy. It, these are all valid things you can throw at Peter Parker, even though, yeah, he's he's doing his best because he's trying to be two people and he's trying to save New York and he's trying to be a regular person and he's failing at being the regular person, but he's always disappointing people. He's never doing what he's meant to. And it's this really amazing juxtaposition of which I think Capra does well also in his wonderful life of saying, you can't be both. You need to find a way to kind of be one or the other. Um, so you can't be George Bailey and want to go overseas and get out of Bedford while working at the savings and loan. You need to pick one. Peter Parker kind of has to choose to be Peter Parker or Spider-Man. And by the end, he chooses to be Spider-Man. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, I'm like going, yeah, you're being an asshole. You're being late. I mean, yes, I get you with saving someone, but at the same time, they don't know that. They're just seeing that person rock up late and um, uh, not Zoe, uh, her sister going, hey, I'm not paying for those pizzas. It's kind of, yeah, it really, that first bit, if you don't see that as a Capra movie, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, absolutely. And it's it's very much about all of that, Again, you want to talk about payoffs. I, I love that you brought up the when he meets Octavius and Octavius says, you know, Connor says you're brilliant, but he also says you're lazy. And then at the end, when you know they're they're there and Peter takes his mask off and he's trying to bring Otto back to the right side, he's like Peter Parker brilliant but lazy. And Molina, and we will talk about Alfred Molina. Oh this my god. God, that performance. <laughs> that ironic smile of like, oh, this is why you're fucking up in your life because yes. this is what you're doing all the time. And I, I do love that the end of the movie is, is sort of the whole kind of idea that Peter does reconcile these two halves. Like you said, he chooses Spider-Man and, and I agree with you, but I also think that MJ basically says, but you don't have to choose. You know, it reminds me of the end of, uh, bear with me on this, the end of Batman Forever, when the Riddler sets up, you know, Batman can either save Robin or uh, Dr. Chase Meridian. Great name. Yes. <laughs> and, and Al Kilmer gives that speech of, I can save them both because I am both Batman and Bruce Wayne. Mm. I don't need and i sort of feel like that's kind of it where peter he chooses spider-man but he also acknowledges that with that comes the curse that peter parker's life is always going to be a mess yes and, and one of the things i love about the spider-man comics that i think none of the other movies have ever gotten right is this idea that peter carries the weight of the world on his shoulders but when he puts on the mask he's free in those moments when he is swinging through Manhattan, he is free. And Raimi really nails that idea that like Peter's life is going to suck. But my outlet is I put on this mask, I thwip these webs and I am Spider-Man. And, and Raimi really nails that idea of he chooses to be, to live his everyday life in the shit so that he can do this amazing thing in his other life. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of what the end of the movie comes down to is the world is better because Spider-Man's in it. The world's better because George Bailey's in it. Uh, and that's, that's massive. That's a huge story arc that this movie does. That is. And this movie is a movie of story arcs. Everyone has one, no matter what the small, um, I mean, Tobey Maguire obviously does, Kirsten Dunst obviously does because they're the main ones. Alfred Molina as the villain um, has a great story, emotional story arc. Even J.K. Simmons has a great emotional story arc. I mean, we'll have to get to him in the friggin' suit. Um, Rosemary Harris does. James Franco definitely does. I mean, some of the fr James Franco stuff is some of my, I mean, he's making a choice with his acting. He's done it since the beginning, but um, I love his arc so much in this movie. And that's kind of what I like about, about it. Every 
yes, everyone has to make a choice in this movie about how they deal with something or how they um, resolve something. Um, and it's all about the emotional fallout from that, especially for the emotional fallout from the first movie. And going back to a point where, yeah, Sam Raimi gets the joy of freedom of Spider-Man being Spider-Man. It's because he was only making, he was allowed to only make a Spider-Man movie because all the other Spider-Man movies, are, yeah, some are in Marvel and some with the Matt Waltz one, they had to be the Marvel S. So you couldn't just make a Spider-Man movie. You have to tie it in with everything else. I mean, the whole amazing Spider-Man was too busy trying to set up the Sinister Six to worry about what Spider-Man was doing. And you're like, but I like Spider-Man. I want to see what he's actually doing. I don't want all the setup. And the same with the Marvel movies. Um, you know, Spider-Man's an Avenger. What I want to do is I just want to see Peter Parker dick, dick around with um, MJ. I'm not that concerned with him being a superhero. So it's kind of, yeah, but you do get this joy of freedom and these amazing emotional arcs. And everyone has one. This movie has time to breathe. This movie will just focus in on a few seconds on Tobey Maguire's stupidly large blue eyes. And you're allowed to just sit in that. And that's what I really love about this movie. It had, yeah, there's, as you said, there's room to breathe. There's room to actually feel Spider-Man's freedom. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned everybody in this movie has to make a choice because so when this movie was released, there was a series of posters uh, that had uh, a, a word above it. Like one of them was, was Spider-Man in it swinging and it said destiny and my favorite one of the entire series is peter standing on the edge of a building holding his mask and the word at the top of the poster is literally choice mm. and and that's exactly it every single character in this movie has to make a choice uh good and bad you know and that's that's a narrative engine right there like that that's that's fucking alvin Sargent doing some some shit there. yes it is <laughs> looking at he's going you know octavius makes a choice that his work is more important to him than anything else but then he makes another choice that he's you know i mean one of the lines that just kills me in this movie is as he's drowning uh the machine you know he says I'll not die a monster. Yes. God, damn it. Fucking James Whale, like, stood up in his grave and was like, <laughs> um, you know, and, and every character in this has choices to make and those choices have consequences. And the whole point of the movie is learning to live with them. Peter makes the choice to tell Aunt May that he's responsible for uncle Ben's death and she makes the choice to forgive him. Like in addition to gifts and curses being a theme of this choice is literally the theme of this entire fucking movie. Oh, it is. Yeah. And I mean, go, yeah, go ahead, no, sorry. I was just going, I wish I, when I first saw this movie that I wasn't such a, uh, yeah, I guess asshole, but I was 25. So what, 25 year old isn't an asshole but I kind of wish I just kind of sat with the movie and just realized what it was doing and not just seeing Aunt May giving that speech about we all need a hero and rolling my eyes um because I did not like this movie for years I always thought it was this kind of over sentimental kind of thing and I just didn't like it and then I rewatched it like about 10 years ago and went 
oh, maybe I was, I mean, not even 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, and went, oh, maybe I'm wrong. And then this watch, I'm like, oh my God, it's a masterpiece and it has me on the floor. It's kind of that kind of thing. And I think, again, I think it's this emotional protective thing that people kind of, when they first watched um, It's a Wonderful Life had, that they just call it, oh, it's just sentimental. No, it's dealing with some really big emotions like that scene you were talking about when she, uh, uh, Peter tells Aunt May the truth and she, but she pulls her hand, she chooses to forgive him, but not after she pulls her hand away, looks in horror about what actually, how her husband died. Because she's still grieving. It's not like she's fine. Um, she is definitely still grieving from the effects of the first movie. And she leaves because she has to process what has been told. And then she makes the choice to forgive what happened because that is life. It's a series of events that happen in life, not a purposeful, um, malicious thing that happened, except for what's his name, shooting, shooting him. Um, but, and then she goes back and says, no, you're my nephew. I raised you. I love you. I just needed to process that and then gives him this amazing speech. So I kind of wish I wasn't, I could just let myself give, give into this movie, but it took a couple of times for me to really just give into the emotion because there is so much emotion going on. And you're right. When Octavia says, I won't die a monster, it completely floors you because you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> it's amazing. Well, and the thing about that MA speech too is, you know, Rami's telegraphing. She clear, like she knows. <laughs> she obviously during the bank, Octavius <laughs> attacks. Peter runs away, and all of a sudden, fucking Spider Man appears and saves her. <laughs> yeah, like and like he's wearing a mask, but it ain't like it's disguising his voice that much, right? You know, she raised that boy. She knows. <laughs> and so the whole thing is, is like she lost Ben. But losing Ben gave the world Spider-Man. Mm. And so she knows that for every sacrifice, for every gift, there is a curse. Yes. She, had to lose, she had to lose her husband, but the world got a hero. And her nephew, of all people, is that hero. Like, it's... Fuck, this movie's good. <laughs> Sorry. But they give her time to process it. Yes, after the bank attack, she doesn't just go and go, oi, Peter, I know you're Spider-Man. No, she kind of did the background. Then she finds out more information about actually how he became Spider-Man and how Ben actually died. And it gives her time to process that information. Most movies would just be like, oh, this is a, this information. She's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm, I'm cool. No, she has to go back and actually process because it's big things that have just happened. And yeah, she's still grieving her husband she um but then she knows that this is a sacrifice for for super, for spider-man to become a thing keep calling him superman yeah those two are similar um and yeah i love this raimi just gives everything time to breathe and he makes a goddamn raimi movie this is just everyone on their top level doing amazing amazing things and that's not even getting into the performances i mean Rosemary Harris is amazing in this movie. She is just the heart and soul of everything that's happening. Because you're right, she's telegraphing him. She goes, I know you're Spider-Man. I know you're a hero. And I know that and the world needs you. Um, so you can't just give up on it because things are getting tough. You need to actually push through and be the hero that you have committed to being. Because you did it because my husband died. So you, you need to fulfill that promise. And it's such a great scene. <laughs> it's 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 incredible um so this 
part of the reason I I've, I think I've told this story before, but part of the reason this is my favorite movie of all time is so obviously loving the first one. I was all in on this one, watching the trailers. And, do you, you know, Linz, when you watch a trailer and you can't help but sort of build in your head what the movie's going to be. Yeah. This is only movie I've ever seen in my life where the movie that I saw was the movie that was in my head. Oh, wow. Like literally down to not, not specific shots, but just the idea of Peter's going to lose his powers. Cause I knew they were adapting the Spider-Man. No, no more arc. Mm-hmm. Peter's going to lose his powers. And then he's going to get his mojo back. And, and I, when he drops his glasses and clenches his fist, I literally burst into tears in the theater because I was just, I was seeing the movie that I had envisioned in my head and Sam Raimi somehow managed to know that was exactly the movie that I wanted. I have never had a more perfect film going experience than the first time I saw this movie. Uh, so it, yeah so as adam risky says you wanted the moon and you got the moon i i i got fucking jupiter <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like i i didn't just get the moon i got fucking jupiter on this one i i like i know not everybody loves sort of rainy's much like capra not everybody loves rainy's sort of cheesy style and and stuff like that but um this this was a movie that was made. I don't give a shit if it made a dollar. This was a movie that was made exclusively for me. And I love that it exists because of that. Cause this is my movie. This is like you said, it's, it's my DNA. But part of the reason for that is because this is my movie. This is the movie I wanted. And I got the movie that I wanted exceeding everything because i couldn't have even possibly envisioned the subway scene like or the 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 elevated train scene oh my god yeah i could have never even envisioned that and the fucking passing him back like he oh my god uh yeah no i uh i know this yeah so there are no this discussion certain stuff around say so i don't mean to keep banging on modern movies because i actually really do like suicide squad it's actually my favorite superhero movie of the year even though it's mean as hell and just too mean in some points. But there's always a discussion of when a director will undercut an emotional beat. Um, And I'm using um, Suicide Squad because it's the most recent one in my head. I know there are others. Um, When a director goes, oh, you should just let that emotional moment go for a little bit longer. Raimi is the master of of undercutting a emotional moment but it not feeling like it is it kind of adds to the drama like in that uh above rail scene when they pass him back and you just care this oh god he's just a kid it's like this kind of thing people built up in their head and they realize they're just looking at a 22 year old or 23 year old is he at this at this stage and then so they do that amazing new york thing where they're like no to Doc Ock, who's like, no, I want him. And they're like, no, you're going to have to get through me. And so they're all doing, standing in front of him. And Doc Ock just like swings everyone aside and crap takes him. <laughs> it's, I don't know why that works. Cause it's uncutting this, it's undercutting this amazing emotional moment, but at the same time, it just works. <laughs> and it, this movie does it again and again and again. 
Well, it works because it's undercutting the first movie because there's <laughs> a scene in the first movie where he's rescuing Mary Jane and the, and the trolley and all the New Yorkers, you know, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, you mm. know, and Raimi's not a hack. He's not going to go back to that well again. Mm. He knows full well, we're expecting him to go back to that well again. And so he undercuts it because it's not cruel. And that's the problem with Suicide Squad for me. um, Is it's the way James, and he doesn't do this in Guardians of the Galaxy or Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Mm. Stand by, he's working out some shit in Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. The way he undercuts it in Suicide Squad is cruel. It's downright mean. And like Sam Raimi literally left movies to go tend to his garden. There's not a mean bone, unless it's Bruce Campbell. There's not a mean bone in that man's. (laughs) I know. Uh, Yeah, you're right. When it comes to Bruce Campbell, he would just like poke his like sprained ankle with a stick. (laughs) But if Bruce isn't involved, there's not a mean bone in that dude's body. And so he's not trying to do it mean. What he's trying to do is subvert our expectations because we all saw the first Spider-Man. And we're expecting this. And it also very cleverly raises the stakes because here's, again, the thing. Peter has now learned he cannot beat Doc Ock in a physical fight. Mm. In a physical fight, he will lose. He cannot punch his way out of this problem. So in a very Frank Capra-esque fucking move, he talks his way out of this problem. This is the thing that, people kind of forget about this. This does not have a big epic action finale. Nope. The big epic mm. action finale is Peter saying, you're a good person. Why are you doing this? And Doc Ock saying, I am a good, listen to me, listen, listen to me now. You know, and there's, there's no punching. There's no, like, Peter literally talks his way into saving the world. That is a thing, again, You like you said, I don't want to keep bitching on the MCU or even modern superhero movies. There's no giant vortex in the sky. There's no big CGI battle. Peter Parker's inherent kindness saves the fucking day. Like, what an anticlimactic ending, except for the fact that it's fucking brilliant and it's the perfect ending for this movie well no because i think it is the perfect ending and that last shot is one for the ages um it just seriously is but going back to that sort of scene where yeah you're right he can't beat doc ock in a physical fight at all it's just it's not gonna happen um but what i love is how because you sort of get the way he sort of uses his evil deadness when you sort of see uh, doc ock's tentacles um slowly take over everything is because he there's an inherent arrogance to Doc Ock. I am the smartest man in the room. Everything I do is correct. And then he realized, oh, wait, I'm not. But no, I must finish my work to prove I'm still the smartest man that has ever lived. And he, but the tentacles have started taking him over. And I love that scene when he's in his little amazing shack by the river and he starts talking to them. They start kind of like going, oh, but we could finish our work. And it's an amazing scene. So when he goes, listen to me, he's talking to his tentacles and going, no, 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 this is not me. I know you want this, 
but I have to be in charge. Um, and I have to realize that what I'm doing is dumb. So I'm not the smartest man in the world. And I refuse to die a monster, which is this amazing arc. He chooses that his work is more important, even over, and yes, his death of his wife definitely fuels that. But at the same time, he then chooses to do the right thing. And Alfred Molina's performance in just conveying that, because he's a relatively simple villain on the, on the page um, in terms of that. Um, but what Alfred Molina brings to that character, there's a reason when I watch the No Way Home and I hear this, hello, Peter, I'm like going, <laughs> it's Doc Ock. Um, it's because he's amazing. He brings this duality. He is, yeah, you, you keep bringing up, you brought up James Whale and now I keep bringing it back because he is a James Whale character in another movie as well. And it's amazing. Yeah, he's such, you know, that's what I, I, I don't, you know, Raimi's been pretty upfront about a lot of his influences, but, you know, the Three Stooges and stuff like that, yeah. but I, I have to think he's, I, and, and there's, there's maybe there's an interview out there, but I've never seen him talk about his love of Capra or even really his love of James Whale. I know back kind of when dark man came out he talked maybe talked about it a bit but that was pre-internet so mm. who knows if i could find that but it's so obvious that he loves both of them because if if james whale and frank capra got together and had a baby spider-man 2 is that fucking movie it has to be i can't see it any other way i mean yes you can see these like 1950s monster influences in it but melina is straight out of a james whale movie and Aunt May and Peter Parker and Kirsten Dunst out of a Capra movie. You're right. These are these two sensibilities melding together. Um, and he's got James Whale's sense of humor, which is dark and over the top and people not looking at it going, is that meant to be funny? Wait, no. Yeah. That is meant to be funny. Even though you're laughing, just giggling hysterically at it. Like when you said the theater didn't quite know how to handle Peter Parker falling down when he's, <laughs> when he realizes he needs his glasses. Um, people were like, is that meant to be funny? It's like, yes it's meant to be funny so it's kind of this amazing melding of these kind of influences and bringing this kind of old world hollywood sensibility to a 2004 blockbuster which is kind of a miracle because i don't if we're talking about how i couldn't believe the hulk was made when it was made because i'm like they let ang lee get away with that they let sam raimi get away with this and it's incredible <laughs> yeah i mean and, and it's it's so it's such still to this day such a high tech top tier blockbuster too i mean the, I, like this movie looks fucking fantastic still mm. oh, like it, gorgeous a day <laughs> you know, in fact, it looks better than most modern blockbusters because uh, Doc Ock's uh, tentacles were a combination of CGI and actual fucking puppets. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> the, the rigs that they put Alfred Molina in and stuff. But what Raimi really did here was he cast a bunch of terrific actors let them be terrific actors. And again, not to bitch about the MCU, but didn't undercut it with a bunch of snark. He let them be sincere and broad. He told J.K. Simmons, man, you're going to be J. Jonah Jameson. 
like one of the biggest, I don't even want to say villain because Jonah's not a villain, but one of the biggest antagonists in the entire Marvel universe. Mm. Fucking go, dude. Just go. Be that guy. And I love, you know, you want to talk about undercutting, going back to the... <laughs> Peter gets his powers back. I love that. This is all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. And Ted, of course, showing up. Ted Raimi showing oh. up. Because he's the only one that could have stopped Octavius. Yes. And then Peter takes the suit and he's like, I, he's a menace. He's a criminal. I want him prosecuted. I want Spidey. You know, he Raimi is so good at undercutting it in a way that doesn't negate it it just makes it fun and it does it, that scene is glorious especially when he starts wearing the suit and for those listening if, if you've only seen the theatrical version where he's wearing the suit it's in the spider-man 2.1 version and it's awesome he's jumping on his desk and he's got the cigar in his mouth and stuff it's so terrific i fucking love it um you know and and Again, the little things that Raimi does, like Bruce Campbell. I, I love, I saw, I saw Bruce Campbell. Um, I, I met him. Uh, I think we talked about this in the Evil Dead 2 episode. He was on a book tour for one of his books. And he's got a long running joke that he's, he's the most important person in Spider-Man's life because in the first one, he's the one that names Spider-Man. Mm. And then in the second one, he's the only one that's ever defeated Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, this is true. He does not let him into that. Oh, that is such just, it is so purely amazing of that. Oh, tight. Oh, button. Get yourself tidy. Now, what would you like? I'd like to go in. No. <laughs> there's just, there's just so much in this and it's filled this movie, much like it's a wonderful life is filled with so much heart. And that's a thing that we're, even in a lot of movies now, we're sorely... It's one of the reasons I loved Paper Tigers so much this year is, like, the world sucks. Like, I don't need movies to be schmaltzy and cheesy, but what I do want them to be is filled with heart. And it's the same reason Paper Tigers... I loved Zack Snyder's Justice League because for all of Snyder's criticisms, that movie is filled to the... that The heart in Justice League is fucking overflowing and uh and in spider-man 2 is the same like maybe more so than any director since frank capra this movie is just filled to the brim with heart and love and but it doesn't but it still has stakes it still has things that matter and tension and all of that stuff it's a balancing act that is almost impossible to pull off and fucking Raimi just walks across that high wire like it's nobody's business. It really does. He makes it look easy, which when you actually sort of break down this movie, it's not because as we've said, every single character has an emotional arc and a choice they need to make. And they're not, they're related to each other, but yet not always related to each other. Like uh, James Franco, he's the guy who's trying to fill his father's shoes and failing most of the time. And then at the end, once he realizes his best friend is the guy who killed his father, yes, this gets very melodramatic, he has a moment of crisis because he's like going, I hate you, but yet you're my best friend. I don't know how to deal with this. And his brain shifts to where he sees his father in the mirror, which is my favorite scene from the original Spider-Man when you've got Willem Dafoe 
talking to a, talking to the Green Goblin in the mirror. And you have that repeat of that scene. And then he finds a secret passage and then he goes in and there it is, all the Green Goblin stuff. So he can be the Hobgoblin and then he makes a choice. And again, it's kind of amazing. And in any other movie, he would almost be forgotten because he's not in a lot of it except for these big dramatic moments. And he's in his own movie. I mean, he just wants to kill Spider-Man to get revenge. And Peter's keep going, you know, maybe you should forget about it. I mean, it happened. You should just maybe let it go because I can't deal with you right at this particular moment. I've got all this other stuff I need to work out. And then even when he, and even Peter Parker's not even able to give him sort of closure on, his dad and it's kind of just like yeah well yeah I kind of did that but I need to go save MJ so it's kind of this amazing dynamics between these characters where it all just kind of works and everything's setting up for these kind of bigger things but even though we got three and yes I agree it's a mess and I need to rewatch it we didn't need a three exactly you could have just left this open-ended and it's 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 perfect so yeah (laughs) yeah I mean uh a couple things to say about that. One, one of my favorite things about that scene where he sees Willem Dafoe is Willem Dafoe was not even supposed to be in the movie. He literally happened to be walking <laughs> in New York when they were filming it. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to pop in and say hi to Sam and Bill Pope and Toby and everybody. And they're like, fuck it, you're here. Let's shoot a scene with you, yeah. which is amazing. Um, but also I do love, again, another monster, James Franco. but i one of my favorite scenes in this because you're right he's in a totally different movie and he's going big but i love when when octavius is when at first his the the his thing starts going wrong and i don't know why i'm drawing a blank on it and spider-man has to save everybody he saves harry and the first thing harry says is this changes nothing you know and the way Franco delivers that line where it's just it's just menace and spite like you fucking child get the fuck over it because Peter didn't even kill your dad no like your dad killed himself because he couldn't let it go yeah but the other thing I love tying it back into the Capra thing is when Peter you know he's he's at Harry's and Harry figures out that Spider-Man's Peter and Peter breaks the ropes and he's like, he's got MJ and Peter's like, or uh, Harry's like, you killed my dad. Peter's like, there are bigger things going on here than you and me. And that is such a Capra idea that, you know, Harry is so selfish and so stuck in his own world where Peter being the proper Capra hero, you know, Harry thinks he's the hero of a Capra movie. Oh, he does. Yeah. Peter is the hero of a Capra movie because Peter understands, dude, I don't have time to work with your bullshit right now. I got to go save, like, yes, she's the woman I love. She's the woman that you kind of love. And more importantly, she's our friend. And this guy's about to destroy New York City. I can't deal with your temper tantrum right the fuck now. (laughs) I got to go. Like, that that is so well done you know one of the things i hate in movies and tv shows is when characters don't if you'd taken an extra 10 seconds and just said something and that does kind of come up in three when we get the magical butler that reveals the whole thing Uh, yeah (laughs) that was like a quick we need to fix this how do we do it magical butler (laughs) but in this case it doesn't bother me because i totally understand why peter would be like 
you're being a fucking child right now. And I cannot deal with this. I got shit to do. I got to go busy. (laughs) You get to sit here in your nice little rich fucking mansion and be mopey. I got to go save the fucking world. So I'm going to (laughs) go, you know, um, it, it just, it works so well the way all of those pieces fall into place. Yeah, even at the beginning when uh, there's a surprise party for Peter because Peter's just so busy and out of it, he completely forgets his own birthday. And um, they're having a nice time and then Harry has to go up and goes, oh, so have you been? I've been busy. Yeah, taking photos of your friend. And just the way he's, yes, James Franco is the worst, but the way he says that line is amazing. It is so childish. It's so kind of. I love that he calls him the bug. Taking pictures of the bug you know like like it's like this is actually a perfect role for james franco was meant to play a spoiled petulant child and so i know a lot of people criticize him for these movies but this is actually kind of the perfect james franco role because he is a spoiled petulant fucking sexual assaulting child yes and here he like nails it perfectly Uh, like he's so but also he still does manage to bring, like you do still kind of, especially if you've watched the first one, you feel for Harry. Like you understand why Harry's got issues, not just with Spider-Man, but even with Peter, because his dad liked Pete. Peter was the son he never had, you yes. know? And Franco nails that. No, because it is, this movie is all about emotional fallout from the first movie. And yes, he's being a petulant child, but it shows the difference between how Peter grieved for his uncle like he inadvertently screwed up and is um in a very specific way that his uncle um was killed Harry was sitting there jealous looking at Peter his dad going you're amazing why are you such a loser basically not even subtext and then he died so he says all these very complicated relationships his father was died in very mysterious circumstances he doesn't necessarily know about the green goblin thing so yeah you you kind of heartbreak for harry because he's dealing with a lot of stuff but it shows the differences between him and peter because they dealt with things in very very different ways harry went toward trying to be his father then going following in his destructive characteristics while um uh peter took his final his grandfather's final words to heart with great power comes with great responsibility and he took it too much to heart like because he knows he has to be spider-man and therefore he can't be peter because peter's gonna screw up and just disappoint everyone there's a line where Kristen dunce says um uh, i think it's you either you disappointed me again or i knew you were going to disappoint me and just the sadness in her face when she says that is just heartbreaking because she's like i want to be there for you i want to be your friend but i can't you haven't even come to see my show (laughs) and even my abusive father came and saw my show so it's kind of it's yeah it's these moments that I I don't know I'm losing words this movie's amazing I keep saying that (laughs) well and and that's the thing is that's really the difference between the two of them Mm. Norman Osborne never told Harry never taught Harry because Norman Osborne had all the power in the world Mm. but he never learned and he therefore never taught Harry with great power comes great responsibility. And, and, and look, Stanley, that sentence is the greatest thing that Stanley in a, a career of brilliant sentences, that sentence is the greatest thing Stanley ever wrote. Mm. And, 
and and that's the difference. Peter had Ben to tell him with great power comes look, just because you can beat up Flash Thompson doesn't mean you should. Yes. And Norman was all about power. Take it. You need to, you have it, control it, take it. And that's what sets them at odds. Um, but the other thing I love that you mentioned Mary Jane saying that, uh, can we also talk about the other real fucking Capra-esque thing here in this is uh, Mary Hatch, sorry, Mary Jane Watson coming in at the very end and telling Peter, isn't it about time you let somebody save you? Yes. <laughs> I'm just oh a girl my. standing in the door. <laughs> but then also Raimi undercutting it again in that perfect way because they kiss. Peter says, thank you, Mary Jane Watson. But then he has to go fly off and be Spider-Man. We get that closing shot on Kirsten Dunst's face where she is so good at the, I love this guy, but I'm also terrified, which is, again, that Capra thing of, you don't get the joy without the cost. The cost, yes. they get together. Or the joy is they get together, but the cost is she's now living with and in love with a superhero who could literally die at any moment. And, and Raimi doesn't lose sight of that. It's not a cruel undercut, but it's not sentimental. He's very cognizant of what the reality of this situation is. Um, it's, it's just, it, it's so spot on Capra um, that, that it, it, I, again, I don't know how you could watch these two movies back to back and not see the similarities. No, because that's how the movie ends is on her face. And Kristen Dunst is amazing in this movie. Like I love her in the second one because um, everyone in the first movie is wide eyed and innocent and oh my God. And she's the only one that's beaten down because just of her home life. The fact that she's working, I only realized it's the Moonlight Cafe that she's working in in the first one, which is amazing. Um, thank you, Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, and it's kind of this thing. And then in the second one, she's kind of the mature one. She's kind of the one that sort of understands as well to balance her success and her family life. She kind of has it everything together in, in, in the second one, which is kind of amazing. It's this kind of little subtle growth that she does. Um, but yeah, if you watch these movies back to back, you realize that both of them are almost also socialist revolution movies, um, just in the sense that the people who have all the power, like the Norman Osborns and the Harry don't understand their responsibility. They just kind of want to take more power and they're more about these kind of petty vengeances, even though with Harry is a little more complicated, but it's because it's Sam Raimi, Spider-Man 2. But the people who, I mean, this is where um, Aunt May loses her house. Someone had the nerve, Joel, um, what's his name, had the nerve not to give her a loan. Um, it's, I mean, the cameos in this movie, well, not cameos, the people who are in the minor roles to go on to bigger things is amazing. Um, that it's kind of, these he, people... he wouldn't even give her the fucking toaster. No, it's like, come on. <laughs> come on, Jeff Winger. You can't give her the fucking toaster. It's actually funny. We had just finished Community. <laughs> yeah. I was like, and Kelsey was like, oh shit, it's Jeff Winger. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. He couldn't even give her the fucking toaster, you douchebag. Jeff Winger would have given her the toaster. I mean, he would have pretended not to, and then he would have quietly just gone, here's your toaster. And then he has the nerve to say, oh, your nephew's a piece of work. I'm like, 
you are such an asshole. But yeah, it's that kind of thing of the people who um, are kind of are the, in the poorer neighborhoods, the working class. They're the ones who understand their responsibilities more than the wealthy. And that, again, is such a Capra thing that keeps coming up in his work. I mean, even um, it happened one, yeah, it happened one night with Colette Colbert. Her whole thing is her realizing that, you know, how to be a working class kind of person because she's kind of hanging out with, um, you know, on the bus and in these kind of small hotels and learning kind of the ropes of how to be not rich. This is kind of this movie as well. And it's kind of a, it's kind of that big difference of the wealthy have all the power yet wield it for really small and petty reasons where there's the working class are the ones who strive and understand their responsibilities more i mean it's more of a distinctive fantasy the much more blurry than that but it's yeah you can't see these movies side by side and go oh no spider-man 2 isn't capra it's because it's it's pure capra <laughs> well and and also like um yeah i i'm gonna i'm gonna look up i i want to give him credit where where he's where he's due um peter's landlord uh elia baskin uh mr dikovich like he's right out of a capper movie right like oh he is hi hi what is hi can i spend it <laughs> <laughs> i just love it oh i just have this five dollars that is my five dollars <laughs> you know he's right at, he is totally a capper character you know because yeah. capper populated his movies with these really vibrant energetic interesting you know uh i always think of i'm drawing a blank on his name but in in meet john doe you know the the uh walter brennan i think it was mm. uh, you know helots always talking about the helots and, mm. uh, and, and and that's the same thing that Raimi does here where he populates we've got the the fringe characters are all so good yeah and, um you know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, Emily Deschanel. Fucking bones. Yes. Shows <laughs> be like, yeah, chewing her gum and like, yeah, that's late. Uh, I'm not paying for that. Like one minute late. It's just yeah. It's like the guy who wanted this two hundred and forty-two dollars. It's everyone's populated by that, and he kind of it just adds this kind of texture to it, and. Even the guy who's yelling at Peter because he was both late with the pizza and he's like talking about his responsibilities. I'm like, yeah, I get it. If I was that guy, I'd be yelling at Peter because you're always goddamn late. <laughs> that annoys me. Well, and then just the little shit. Like I love when the the opening, when Peter's trying to get the pizzas there and he realizes he's not going to make it. So he runs into the alley and turns into Spider-Man and the dude's like, whoa, Spider-Man just stole that, stole that guy's pizzas. You know, and it's like, there's so much color in the yeah. market of this movie uh but we also have to shout out uh Magina tova who is ursula who is uh the daughter of peter's landlord oh uh, she is so amazing <laughs> she's and i love you know i know there was a scene they they there were some deleted scenes to try and make their peter and her relationship a little more um like a little bit more of a triangle kind of thing hmm. um but Raimi didn't really want that. He really, he cut him out because he wanted her to just be this sort of supportive friend of, of Peter. And she's, she's great in it. I mean, she's adorable and wonderful. And the, you do get the sense of like, well, why Peter, why would you not just go with her? But then, you know, you see Toby Maguire interact with Kirsten Dunst and you're like, 
yeah, sorry, man. You can't, you can't replicate that kind of fucking chemistry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's an amazing moment when she's kissing her fiance, uh, Daniel Gillis, I think it is. And um, she does the upside down kiss. And even Dan was just like, my partner was just like, yeah, but it's not that Spider-Man upside down kiss, is it? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and it's, those two have such a great chemistry um, together that when they look at each other, it's magic. And yeah, Kirsten Dunst, again, is kind of, I love her in this movie because yeah, she's the only one that's kind of has it all together. And so when she realizes that the reason why that Peter's kind of keeps disappointing her is because she's this thing that she's always kind of been in love with. She's like, Oh, the two people I'm kind of in love with are the same person. This is perfect. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, so for years, I always said that she was the weak link, weak link in these movies. And this is one of the, speaking of gifts and curses, this is one of the curse of being a comic book fan. Mm. She was not the Mary Jane that I had built up in my head. And over the last five years or so, watching all the Spider-Man movies repeatedly, because why would I not? Um, I have really come around on, no, she's fucking terrific. Mm. In she's, she's delightful. She's wonderful. And you can absolutely see why, because she's, the other thing that Raimi really nails, and I will, to give some credit, since I've bitched about them a lot, mm. to give some credit to the John Watts movies. Mm. He's also, Zendaya has also really nailed that. Yes. The hottest girl in the school. This is, you know, staring at her is like staring into the sun. But they nail her inherent humanity and her compassion and her kindness. And so you kind of do get, to a certain extent in Spider-Man 2, you almost kind of get the opposite effect of like, why are you still fucking around with Peter? He's a dick. (laughs) Why are you? It's kind of like that moment in the house and it's a wonderful life when she's just throwing himself at George and George is just like not wanting to see it and being a bit of a douche about it. I'm like, oh, come on, Mary. You are, you are, you are better than this. I mean, you are goddamn Donna Reed. Come on. And it's the same thing with this. I'm like, why are you waiting around for Peter? I mean, you have Daniel Gillis, who's like an astronaut. And okay, you do have to be married into uh, Jonas Jameson's family. But um he it's kind of yeah i'm like uh, he's being a dick right now you must see something in him that i'm not seeing at the moment because every single time you have an interaction he is disappointing you and he is leaving you messages and he doesn't and he can't even finish them because he doesn't have enough coins to finish the message of saying i am spider-man and it's just yeah i really love her the more i watch the more i think she's one of my favorite parts of these movies yeah i agree and and again back to the brilliance of Raimi it all coalesces in that scene where he's holding up the wall and he says, in case we die. And she's like, you do love me. And he's like, I do. And the, the, the way their eyes lock, you, you get it there. All of a sudden you're like, Oh, right. You have magic. Yes. Daniel is great. He's a good looking dude. He's an astronaut. He's rich. You have magic. Yes. And, and, and that's the thing. And, and, and Raimi does that kind of in the first one in the scene in the graveyard where he has to tell her he can't be with her. Um, it's like, okay, I, we do get it. We just have to watch the whole movie to actually 
get it. Uh, but that that scene where they lock eyes and he's holding up that wall is just, I mean, th- my God, the screen fucking melts. Like that is sexual chemistry just oozing out of your television screen when you watch that scene. It really is. They kind of already undressing each other with their eyes a little kind of, but not really. I mean, going back to the Marvel movies, I do actually like Zendaya a lot. I do like the chemistry she has with Tom Holland because she kind of grounds him in a way. Every time they're together, it's more of like a teen comedy where I just want to watch them hang out. But then I realized, oh, wait, this is a Marvel movie. So they, he has to go off and be Spider-Man when I, I do love that moment on the bridge when they're in Prague and no uh, far from home. When she goes, you're Spider-Man. He's like, wait, how did you know? She's like, oh, shit, I was right. And it's like, yeah, they, they're cute together. They're more cute men because they're 16. So I think that's kind of, I like the cuteness. But um, Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire are, lifelong they're they're soulmates and you can tell in that moment when he's holding up the wall is that oh they are soulmates and now it's the moment they can just admit to each other that they are yeah he's swinging back through the window in that spider-man costume and she is jumping the fuck out of him to oh, try. yes because <laughs> i love how in those spider-man movies his costume always tears like there's always some part of it like the amount of times he has to like so and fixes his costume would be absolutely hilarious because when he sort of says in the elevator oh it's it's um it's a homemade costume like how many times have you had to re-sew your costume because um it's been torn because you're doing shit of the half of the mask is gone and all that kind of thing i absolutely love that so yeah that that mask that costume is getting torn again when he when he goes back to the apartment <laughs> of his costume. can we also talk about the fucking just throwaway gag of him doing the laundry and fucking up his laundry because he washes his costume with his whites oh my god like i get <laughs> damn Raimi. like i'm sorry modern blockbusters they don't they just don't have that flavor that spite it's it's a little salt and pepper, a little oregano, a little a little marjoram, maybe a little bit of hot sauce and cayenne. Like that's what Sam Raimi does so well. It's it's in the fringes. It's in the margins where this movie really becomes the masterpiece that it is. Because like it's a throwaway thing. It's a two second scene. He pulls out the mask and then he pulls out his boxers and they're like pink because he washed his suit, his costume in the wash. And it's not it's not like a big bump joke. Mm. It's a little thing. And there's and that's the same thing Capra did. There's so much flavor in their movies. And, and I love that. That's the shit that just makes me a movie fan is that kind of flavor and that kind of spice. No, same with me. There's both movies have personality to spare and they're the filmmakers and actors in everyone's personality. Like um, I am still, my favorite Spider-Man is still Tobey Maguire. It always will be um, just because I think that's how it was introduced to the character. Um, But I still think he gives the most um, emotional performance like you feel what it's like to be Peter Parker. Like you, you can't put your, your your Spider-Man thing in the in the with your whites because you're gonna have pink boxes. I mean, in that moment, we're all Peter Parker. I mean, what who had who hasn't exactly put that red t-shirt? Like my partner's got a red Spider-Man t-shirt, and I have the amount of times I've accidentally put, I'm like, and the socks are pink. Um, so yeah, I have done that multiple times. Um, it's just it, yeah, it is. 
it works so perfectly and there's different movies within the same movie as we've said James Franco's doing his own thing but then you've got this kind of 1950s uh, James Wells uh, monster movie in the middle of it as well as this other Capra-esque kind of thing and I do love how um, Sam Raimi has his influences on his sleeve and yeah Capra has to be one of them because he keeps coming up in his movies um like I reckon he's in there in Darkman as well I mean he's got that sensibility that he keeps bringing back yeah and and he also grasps the whole concept of how dark Capra is you know you look at something like a simple plan yes uh, you know and it just yeah it, it's I don't know, Lens. I, 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 I could again, much like it's a wonderful life. I could keep talking about this movie forever, but we've, we're also at you know almost three and a half hours. This is true. Um, I yes. Um, but I think we should probably wrap it up here because I think we have covered everything. We could talk about this, the, both these movies for like five hours more, and still not kind of get to the core of what each movie is trying to do um because they are both incredible pieces of cinema and doing and i would actually totally recommend doing this double around just um before christmas because it is kind of got that amazing feel to it and it is a really really great time um and you will just go oh yeah so spider-man 2 is a total capra movie that is awesome and yeah so i kind of hope you do this double before before christmas um so yeah any other quick thoughts about spider-man 2 before we go I mean, I love it. I love it. It's my favorite. It's always going to be my favorite. Um, I, other than that, no, I don't. I, uh, I ended up ultimately a couple months ago muting Spider-Man on Twitter just because I got tired of the constant Spider-Man discourse. (laughs) Especially after that trailer. (laughs) And some people thought that that meant like some people got confused because they were like, yeah, I mean, God, Toby Maguire sucks. And I was like, oh man, you are, you are coming at the wrong target on that one. <laughs> uh, it's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, I fucking love it. I'm with you. This is a terrific double bill. Um, I, and, and it's one that I just, i wanted to talk about for months kind of kind of ever since i did was on cobwebs with daniel and that was i think the first time i really voiced how similar i felt frank capra and sam raimi were and i haven't been able to get that thought out of my head so i thank you again Linz, because you've helped me kind of purge that thought um i, I mean i stand by the thought but I, it's not constantly occupy it's not going to be constantly occupying brain space anymore you can find I, something else to occupy that brain space now <laughs> exactly but um no i think these two movies play incredibly well together uh i think that uh, they're both masterpieces of cinema and they're two of my favorite movies I just fucking love them. So thank you for letting me come on and ramble on for three and a half hours about them. Um, yeah, so I didn't actually realize what the time was. I should really give a close an eye on the time. Um, no, thank you for coming on with this double. This has been an amazing double. And as I said, I was kidding myself if I wasn't going to be watching Spider-Man 2 after the first one and not watching It's a Wonderful Life um, in December um, because they're both really amazing movies and it is kind of a great, great double. Um, before we go, please tell people where they can find your good work, Mike. 
Sure. And also I will say every time I come on, I always make it a, a personal goal to uh, break the record for your longest episode. I don't, I don't know if we actually hit it this time or not, but uh, uh, hopefully I got at least in the, in the ballpark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> You can find me personally at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can follow Action for Everyone on Twitter at A4E Podcast, uh, and that's the number four. Um, and you can also find Action for Everyone and Adkins Undisputed on any major podcast app of choice. We we did rebrand, and some of the podcast catchers haven't fully updated. So you might have to look for either action for everyone or Adkins undisputed, but uh, we're out there. Uh, and you, you can find us that way. No, please do. Cause it is an amazing, amazing, fun, fun podcast. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening for another episode of shock and awe. If again, we're on all the pod thingies, uh, apps, um, there's room to follow us again, shock and all one, uh, at Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to follow me, it is reading geek on Twitter and also letterbox. Um, thank you. This is amazing double. It's always a pleasure to have you on, uh, Michael and Mike, and I can't wait to have you back on for something else. Um, and with that, we will be back on for another double feature next week. All right. Thanks guys. Bye. (laughs) 